I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Welcome to Composite Two-Star Recruits, a USC recruiting podcast with a couple of one-star hosts, Chris 10K Trevino and Gerard Hurricane Martinez. Part of the uscfootball.com podcast family. The Cilantro Boys talk about everything from commitment breakdowns, game analysis, old recruiting stories, and, of course, some unsubstantiated rumors. And now, here are your hosts, 18K and Gerald. Welcome back to Composite Two Star Recruits. I am your one star host, Chris Trevino, and I am joined by my amazing co-host, fellow one star Gerard Martinez. Gerard, we usually film in the afternoon, film, record in the afternoon, but a little bit later going on today as we get into the season, USC football means we're going to be going later. So I'm really hoping this isn't an episode that's going to go into Thursday morning, but I know we will have at least a couple of those this season. Perhaps this season, but tonight, probably not. Not a whole lot going on in recruiting, and certainly we're coming at the end here uh, as we get into August of the big summer push to kind of put together the core of the 2024 class. And I think uh, at this point, the most recent recruiting news hasn't necessarily been positive for USC. And we have learned through years of conditioning that we don't want to drag out bad news. So I don't think we're going to be spending a whole lot of time on uh, the various different nuggets that have not gone USC's way. And so I predict it will not be a super, super long podcast. Thank you for jinxing us. I need like a jinx button or something, but thank you for jinxing us. But yes, these last two episodes actually have been not the most positive for USC fans. Talking about last week's episode, our return to the studio, just how you know USC just went over three in July for, for its big time prospects. Now we're going to be talking about a decommitment for our Colt Open. But before we get into all our topics for today, just a quick reminder of the official sponsor of the Composite Two Star Recruits. You know her, you love her. That is Meredith Schlosser, one of the top real estate agents in Los Angeles with over $600 million in sales and more than 200 five-star Zillow reviews. You can learn more about Meredith and her team at www.meredithschlosser.com. That is S-C-H-L-O-S-S-E-R. And check out her business Instagram at Meredith Real Estate to see everything she's got going on. Gerard, Cold open time. Let's not dance around it. Let's not avoid it. Let's just take it head on. And that is the decommitment, USC's first decommitment of the summer. That is from Modesto, four star California Central Catholic offensive tackle, Manasse Etite. Now, just to go a little bit backwards off his official visit, he was kind of the first whoa 
moment of the summer, getting his commitment off his official visit in June. That was one we were kind of, uh, you know, we talked about how it was a little bit of a shocker. You know, hadn't heard much about him going. USC was kind of playing for behind with his recruitment, but it kind of felt like it signaled maybe a turning point for USC, especially when it comes to the NIL game. But over the last couple of weeks, Manasseh seems like he was fading a little bit with the Trojans. Uh, Crystal Ball had come in for Florida State. He had taken some stuff off his Instagram or his Twitter, all his USC stuff. We usually point to that as a telltale sign of a decommitment or a potential flip coming. Decommits from USC less than about, I think, 48 hours later. He had announced his commitment to Florida State. Floria Crystal Balls came in for that. The number 142 overall prospect in the 24-7 sports rankings and the number 12 offensive tackle. This one does hurt as he was a talented player, but he was also a very raw prospect that was going to take a little bit of time to develop into a very high ceiling. But for the most part, this is a, a bit of a bite for USC's uh, offensive line class, which was shaping up to be very solid, now drops to three commitments in the class. Now, before last week's podcast, we actually had this on the docket. <laughs> and we I'm did. going to reiterate that we have been conditioned over the years not to drag out bad news. So we didn't have a lot of details on it. But at that point, we were already hearing that there was definitely some fire behind the smoke. And unfortunately, he ends up decommitting. Now, there's a lot to unpack here because, as Chris said, when he commit, that was a bit of a benchmark. And that certainly signaled a potential change in the philosophy and the approach to NIL by USC. Now, first and foremost, and uh, we got an email about this, and um, it, it's a very good point to bring up. Manasseh coming over from the Congo. He came to this country to originally play basketball, and he had a host family uh, with another player that was actually committed to Arizona to play basketball. Things didn't work out there. There was a falling out, and he has since moved in, and he's now with another family. And what we had heard all spring long was NIL, NIL, NIL. And Florida State at that point was thought to be the leader. And I think there was a pretty decent amount of consensus when it came to that. I think people also talked a little bit about Miami, but Florida State was always sort of the lead school for him. USC was like third or fourth. You really didn't hear a whole lot about USC. We'd spoken to him after he had taken his unofficial visit to USC at the Under Armour camp. So this was just like a day later at the camp. And we talked a little bit with him about going to USC unofficially. And USC definitely impressed him. And he liked USC for, for several unique reasons. But it still seemed like Florida State was the lead school there. And USC was really using that unofficial visit as a traction visit. Now, coming over from Congo, he is a foreign student, and it's been brought up, foreign students cannot legally have NIL. And that is true to a certain extent. However, college football athletes are also not allowed to go to any certain school because of a deal 
that is made through NIL. So you're kind of getting into these nuances in these gray areas, which is where we are right now with recruiting, unfortunately. We are in that wild, wild west where kind of almost anything goes. And you can say, well, you know, he, he, he has a bank account and a checking account and he's not supposed to get this, that, and the other. But I think with a lot of these NIL deals, especially the more aggressive ones, air quotes, I don't think those payments are going directly to the student athlete. I think there's other people involved. And certainly when you're dealing with a foreign athlete, you're dealing with a camp of people. Now with him, it's a bit stripped down. It's not quite as complicated from what I understand as it's been with other foreign exchange students that have come over, uh, particularly from Africa. Uh, there's a whole system in camp that is uh, in place for these kids to be able to come out and they usually are playing soccer or they're playing rugby. There's not 11 on 11 American football in Africa. So these kids are just athletes that are playing different sports that come out to these camps and they put them through football drills. And then they have a shot to potentially get a scholarship. And I've covered several of these Oluwale Betiku was probably the most prominent, and that was a very interesting one. And there was a lot of people involved in that one. I mean, he originally was living with LeVar Arrington, the former Penn State Washington Redskins uh, linebacker, and they had a huge falling out. And I don't want to get into a he said, she said thing, but it was pretty ugly. And he ended up living mostly with the Sarah coaching staff. And so that kind of gave USC a little more of a foothold and avenue to recruit him. But let me tell you, every one of these recruitments, I shouldn't paint with such a broad brush, but the majority of ones that I have covered, which have been similar to this, have been very, mm, again, air quotes, interesting. We'll use that euphemism. Uh, euphemism. <laughs> uh, so Manasseh Tete committing to USC was a shocker. We actually talked about this last week. We got a question, you know, in each class over the last five cycles, what have been the most stunning right? The stunning, that was the word used, commitments and the stunning misses for USC uh, over the years. And we didn't even think to include the current class, but I would say Manasseh Etete and probably Cameron Fountain would have been on that list. Uh, I think, you know, both of those kids Good point. kind of shocked that USC gets those commitments with everything that we're hearing from Manasseh. And let me tell you, when I say we're hearing NIL being a driving factor, it's very, very, very well sourced. So I have no doubts at all. I mean, I don't want to, again, get into it too much and burn sources and what have you with, you know, things that have been set off record. But it's absolutely was something that it was a surprise to us. It's like, oh, wow, okay, well, USC is getting serious uh, with Manasseh Tite. However, the, the sort of the next shoe to drop, which would have really solidified that feeling was going to be Draylon Miller because Draylon Miller was one of the other recruits that had been targeted by USC who we had heard through countless sources NIL will be a driving factor in his recruitment and USC got to the finish line with him but they fell short which was somewhat predictable if you had talked to those involved with the collectives and those that had spoken on the philosophy and the approach that USC was taking with the collectives. That was the almost confusing thing with Manasseh Tete committing to USC because it all of a sudden changed. Okay, so wait a second. 
maybe they will be more aggressive. Maybe there are other guys out there that USC is willing to wheel and deal, and it's just not about what's the opportunity of NIL. It's about guaranteed money, and it's like, when am I going to get that money? So, you know, we've had, what, two months, not even, that have passed, and all of a sudden, Massey <laughs> just suddenly decides – yeah, I don't want to go to USC. I mean, he hasn't taken any any unofficial visits to we, that we know of. There's there's no, no real event that changed his mind. And, you know, Adrenaline Miller was one of those things, too, where it was 11th hour and seeing, you know, what was going to happen. And I think Adrenaline Miller wanted to go to USC. I think factor-wise, with the offense, with the development, um, everything on the football field that USC has shown, and L.A. And a lot of people said, oh, you know, he's a Silsby kid, small town, Texas, just like Jasper, Texas, with uh, Ty Anthony Smith. These kids are rural southern Texas kids. But I think personality wise, it showed differently. And I think they really did embrace being able to kind of get out of the small town, go to L.A. and build their brand. I think they had a lot of expectation. But again, you know, money talks. And right now, that is part of of the driving factor for some of these kids, not all of them, but some more than others. And so we're going to see, you know, over the years, we're still kind of in the infancy of all this in terms of regulations and parameters and, you know, who steps in from a conference standpoint and says, listen, we're going to have our own rules. You know, we're going to self-impose certain things or is it all continue to be a free for all and it has to be dealt with on a state or federal level because the economics start to become a bit of a problem. The IRS has to get involved. There's scams that start to creep up because there's a lot of people, let me tell you, they're running. They're running to become middlemen in these processes. There's people popping up that are completely unprofessional, don't understand the recruiting process don't really understand economics, but they just know somebody and have a relationship and see dollar signs. And then there are those that are semi-professional. They might be just lawyers that are trying to get involved in this, and they may not have the economic sense of sports agency. And, and then there are actual people that are agents and sport agents that are now kind of getting involved. And you have actual professional representation uh, whether it be a Malachi Nelson with Clutch Sports, or I know Brandon Baker has some professional representation behind him. So there, there is some of that aspect as well. So we're just seeing a kind of mixed bag right now when it comes to, you know, who the schools are dealing with, who the collectives are dealing with, and how this all sort of shakes out. But, you know, unfortunately, it does look like there are going to be some kids that just might be off the table for USC, and, and not just USC. There are other schools as well. I don't think Notre Dame is really competing in the same stratosphere as some of the five families of NIL. I think there are definitely schools that feel like they can be more brazen and aggressive. They don't see the enforcement aspect uh, being something that they have to worry about, whether that's just because of the future of the NCAA or just the topic at hand because you have so much private sector money that is involved here. Um, but there are schools that are still working within, you know, the, the guidelines basically of the NCAA and what the NCAA says is inducement and what the NCAA says it's legal and not legal. And so, again, we're going to see going forward, you know, how things sort of shake out. But this was one of those things that, again, it sort of confused us in a good way <laughs> when he committed. Mm -hmm. It was like, 
wow. I mean, this he is the antithesis of what we had heard source-wise about USC's approach to NIL. He's raw. Everything about him is really kind of put on the physical potential that he has, which is tremendous. I mean, on paper, he's got the long arms, former basketball player, really good footwork, but he's not strong. Uh, you just don't know disposition-wise if he's really a football player. Uh, there's just a lot of sort of open-ended questions. And so, you know, not only from the standpoint of him being a high school athlete, but also being an unproven commodity as a high school athlete. I mean, you can all argue Brandon Baker, you know, five-star offensive tackle at modern day high school. The biggest question with him is he's playing right tackle, not left tackle, but everything else is like, Hey man, this is a guy that's, that's played well, consistent on the best football team in the nation. And so, you know, physically you look at him, he's a, he's a bit more of a finished product. Like you would think that if, if you're ready to make that aggressive approach in NIL, then that would be kind of the first guy you go after. Um, so that it was confusing. It was a bit odd and strange. And um, unfortunately, it's starting to make more sense, but it's at a loss for USC. Gerard, I'm going to run a couple of uh, alternative podcast names. Just give me your reaction. Uh, the Money Talks podcast, a USC recruiting pod. No, that okay. is completely ambiguous. Nobody would know what we're talking about. They're probably tuning in thinking we're going to give them stock tips. Uh, my second one, the gray area pod, a USC recruiting podcast. <laughs> the two-star composite recruiting gray area podcast. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> That's the new name. Uh, something I didn't realize when it comes to NIL and sort of the Manasseh Tite question, but actually foreign student athletes cannot do NIL or cannot get NIL. This is something that I was not aware of. Yes, uh, you must have tuned out from me talking that long, but I did <laughs> bring this up and just talk about it. That I is know. Something... I was just saying this is something I learned in the course of uh, this week, and then obviously you missed you mentioned it, but I don't know if you if if uh, people really latched on to what you said. But yeah, I mean, I have no idea what his status is as a as a student visa or whatever. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a, a a certain technicality of it. But like I said, a lot of those recruitments with international players are very interesting. And they're very interesting beyond NIL. So I I really sort of go, yeah, okay. But then also these schools are not supposed to be making NIL deals to induce players either. Like, you know, I mean, yeah, okay. But, you know, what's the reality of the situation? Um, you know, it, it, it sounds like NIL will be – I can tell you this. From a Tintis perspective, there's definitely an expectation of NIL. There was a huge expectation after his commitment and official visit of NIL with USC. So, again, that's why we were under the impression like, okay. And to be clear, I never heard that and never got that impression from the sources that I have that are involved with the collectives. So... I was like, so, okay, I, I don't get it then. Like, if if the philosophy is still transfers are a much more proven commodity, the players that are on the roster that have proven themselves are a more proven commodity, how do you get Manasseh Atite committed? And, of course, it was academics. Of course, it's L.A., it's relationship with the coaching staff, et cetera, et cetera. But again, some of these kids 
there's definitely a factor that is left empty publicly because the public is not ready for pro-am college football yet. They're just not. It's not palatable to talk about. The kids know it. The people that are representing them from an NIL standpoint know it. Nobody wants to hear, yeah, this kid committed to your school because he got $500,000 more. Because with, and I know I've talked about this before, but it bears saying again, college football fans have an emotional investment in colleges that they root for much of the time because they went to those colleges and it was an honor for them to go to those colleges. They had great experiences there. They also probably paid a good amount of money to go there. So you as a fan, your perspective on this process is you should be freaking grateful to get a scholarship offer, especially from USC, which is like a million dollar scholarship offer. I don't want to hear about how you picked USC because they paid you more money. I mean, it just doesn't feel right for college football fans. It's not like the NFL, but unfortunately, this is the trend right now, and it's going to be this way unless there's going to be some type of salary cap or something of that nature, which kind of makes things a little more of an even playing field. It is the wild, wild west, and some kids are just flat out going to pick schools because it's a payday for them right here, right now, and they need that money for whatever reason, and they shouldn't be demonized for that. I mean, this is the market. This is sort of what's legal. I mean, it's certainly legal within the parameters of the law. Now, within the parameters of the NCAA, ask me if I care is probably the response you're going to get from these recruits. And it's just understandable. I I think it's one of those things that, again, it's going to take time for the fan bases to come to grips with. And then, you know, maybe hopefully five years down the line. I mean, I don't know if it will be that soon if things are kind of on the same road and the same path as they are now that the fan base is just kind of understand, listen, man, this is the way it's going to be. And and does that in itself change the, the landscape of college football? I mean, do you have the SEC schools that just pay players, whatever, and they're going to do that. And then you have other conferences that decide, and this is kind of going back to what I said, almost as a little bit of a hint, do they make their own rules? Do they impose their own rules, sort of like the Ivy League has done? You know, Yale and Harvard used to have pretty competitive football programs once upon a time, and they just decided at some point, listen, we're academic institutions first, and we are going to create strict standards on what students can, how, how where they are academically to be able to enroll these schools and play football these schools, and whether they actually get a scholarship or not, and what a scholarship really means. It's done differently in the Ivy League. And that's not the NCAA that came along and said, well, you guys are Ivy League schools, and you have to do it this way. It's the Ivy League schools and presidents that decided our league is going to be this. This is going to be how we operate. We don't give a crap about what happens down in the SEC. We don't care if Ole Miss is doing that or Alabama is doing this. This is the way we're going to do things. So at some point, does Notre Dame, USC, Michigan, and some of these schools, if the Big Ten becomes a lot more academic 
a savvy and aware and they value that sort of standard more? Is there something put in place also when it comes to the economics of NIL? And they say, you know what? If you really want to get paid millions of dollars to go play college football, then the best place for you to go is over in the SEC. And that's just the way it is. And everybody sort of makes this, I don't know, I would say a gentleman's agreement. It would probably have to be some type of rule that would be etched out in the, in the, in the conference rule book. Again, above and beyond whatever the NCAA is at that point. You know, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. But I, I'm just, I see that there is a chasm here where certain schools are certainly much more brazen and they're just going to approach things differently than others. Drew, why don't you take a step back from the sand pit that is NIL and let's get our feet back on kind of solid ground as we look at it. As we wrap up the cold open here with, you know, what does the class look like with Manasseh now gone? It obviously takes a drop out of the top 10 to number 13 overall. As I mentioned earlier, they now have three offensive line commitments with Hayden Treader, the Cherry Creek, Colorado offensive tackle, three-star, three-star Martin Arlington, Texas interior offensive lineman, Makai Sinai. And then the gem of their O-line clash right now, Jason Zandamella of Clearwater Academy International of Clearwater, Florida, another international prospect uh, similar to uh, Tite. And like we mentioned, as we talked about earlier in this uh, uh, several months or a couple months ago, excuse me, that, you know, there might be room for at least one more offensive tackle in this class. Now that you're at three, you have to feel that USC has to go back on the market again for a high school offensive lineman. Where that is going to come in, going to come from, there are a couple of options out there, but I would expect maybe a couple new offers out from Josh Henson uh, over the next couple of months as they try to find someone to be that fourth offensive lineman. But, you know, you still have modern-day offensive lineman DeAndre Carter still floating around there, although he has picked up a tremendous amount of momentum for Auburn. I believe he's picked up four Auburn crystal balls earlier this week over the weekend. So the Tigers uh, surging for the number one off- interior offensive lineman prospect uh, in our rankings, DeAndre Carter, who, you know, we felt USC was the team to beat. For him, And then you also have offensive tackle Isaiah Garcia, who we mentioned as a possible fifth member of this O-line class. He went ahead and made his commitment to Utah. So U- USC will have to play for a flip in that case if they want Garcia back in their fold. So there are some options there. I'm sure some new options will emerge down the line. But USC, we feel like, could is going to go back and try to get a fourth offensive lineman for this class. Well, they came into the summer looking for three to four and obviously have room for four. And we thought at some point, I mean, if you have the opportunity to get five guys and they're solid players, do you really turn any of them down during the summer? Well, the answer was yes, (laughs) they did. And I think with DeAndre Carter and Isaiah Garcia, I'm confident in saying that USC more or less sort of turned both of them down. And it was just a matter of timing. Now, it wasn't so much, you know, we're not going to take your commitment. From what I understand, it was more we want answers uh, sh- sooner rather than later. And we do the not. Rocket want- ship's leaving. 
Exactly. It was rocket ship, rocket ship. Where are you? How many rides are left at your position? And, you know, DeAndre Carter just decided he wasn't ready to make any commitment at that point, and he didn't want to be pressured. And so he canceled his visit to USC. Isaiah Garcia, we know, was kind of asking around a little bit about numbers at one point at the uh, end of June, trying to figure out what he was going to do. And at that point, USC had filled up. Now they have a spot missing. And so it does kind of bring you into the question of strategy also, you know, pushing for commitments early. And, you know, to me, I don't know why you play the DeAndre Carter recruitment that way. I I think that really in general, every position, if you can get quality players and stack them up, you go and you stack them up. And then you figure it out once late November, December, rolls around and you look at your roster and go, okay, well, we only have room for this many. But before that point, you kind of have to do what the kids do. You know, the kids commit somewhere, they get their foot into a class and they say, okay, yeah, I want to just concentrate on my senior season. And all of a sudden late October rolls around and the chill of decommitment season hits the air. And a lot of these guys are taking visits to other schools. It's like, well, what happened, man? I thought you, you know, wanted to get it done quote unquote, before your senior season. Oh, you know, I just want to kind of, you know, weigh my options a little more. It's so it's one of those things. It's like, it's a two way street, man. And so, you know, in previous years, USC has basically taken that approach and they've been um, very open to system. Hey, you know what, if we can get three running backs, four running backs, and they're all great running backs, we'll take four running backs and then we'll figure it out, you know, and see, Who's really having the good senior year? Who do we really want? Who do we feel is a guy? And the other guys shake loose. That's just sort of the business of college football these days, which, you know, we just got done talking about NIL. It's very much a business. Uh, But USC was kind of like, we have these four guys that want to commit. And so we need to kind of let everybody know this is going to end very soon here. So get on board or not. And so DeAndre Carter and Isaiah Garcia just took longer to, to make a decision and it does look like Carter's going to probably make a decision and it right now looks like Auburn uh, before the beginning of his senior season and a lot of people actually had Garcia going to Stanford which I didn't I was not hearing Stanford for him uh, wasn't really hearing too much about Utah either it was really Oregon and USC and Oregon and USC sort of filled up so you know potentially you know could there still be some conversations, some contact between USC and Isaiah Garcia. I would think maybe more so than with DeAndre Carter at this point, because I think DeAndre Carter kind of shut USC out. Never say never, but just the vibes that I got when everything sort of went down, I think Garcia was uh, a little more open at one point. And people will point and say, oh, no way, man. It was you. It was Utah, Stanford, and Oregon that were his top three. Come on, man. That's, you know. <laughs> that's how it's on the table. What's really going on behind the scenes is is somewhat different. And um, pretty good sourcing gave me the vibe that, you know, USC was definitely a, potentially an option for him and something that, you know, he was very interested in and he really loved his official visit to USC. But Utah has done well recruiting against USC head-to-head. They got Caleb Lamu last year was a player that, you know, USC kind of dragged his feet on, kind of dragged his feet on. They needed to get him in on an official visit, and they kind of kept pushing it back. And that just gave Utah a really good chance to just go swoop in and 
hey, you're a priority guy for us. You know, why are they slow playing you? You know, what's going on? Um, you should commit here right away. And so that that worked well for them, and they were able to get Caleb Lamu. Now they get our, uh, Isaiah Garcia, you know, as uh, the basically the hometown school, which, again, surprised some people. Some people really felt he was going to go to Stanford. So um, in terms of where do we go from here with the offensive line class, you know, is it a for sure thing that USC go, goes and grabs an offensive lineman out of the high school ranks? No, I don't think it's a for sure. We haven't seen any scholarship offers go out, interestingly, which at some other positions where USC's had some misses, you've seen a pretty quick pivot to some other prospects, some other players with additional scholarship offers. Uh, right now, you know, it's the guys that USC brought in during the summer, guys like Isaiah Garcia, um, and then maybe some of the guys that they didn't bring in over the summer. We talked about Brandon Baker being kind of an obvious uh, target there that USC hadn't been in contact with for months at this point. You know, is there some type of pivot as you get closer to signing day? Uh, I think he probably is going to make a decision before that, but you never know. I mean, as you get closer to signing day and USC is is definitely more of the approach that if they were to go after a high school kid, any type of NIL deal they do is going to be a post-signing NIL deal. It's going to be for an enrolled player. And so the closer you get to signing day, you know, the less time you have to wait. And if you're patient, then perhaps with, you know, professional representation and, you know, dealing and, and communicating, because there have been players uh, in past classes in the 2023 class, Malachi Nelson was a guy represented by Clutch Sports and had agency representation. He made that visit to Texas A&M. It was definitely, again, euphemisms, interesting uh, but, you know, there there have been some players, and I think just the differences is the communication level, the trust level, because of the connections they have either with the coaches or players that are already enrolled at USC. Uh, I think it's a, just a little bit different of a situation. But all of it is very temperate, and it's, it's clear that with the high school ranks, USC is just a bit gun-shy about going all in uh, for prep athletes that haven't really done anything, haven't really shown – you know, on the on the college level that they're sure bets. It just seems like, you know, that there's a lot of hesitation when it comes to NIL. I think that's a good pivot point for us to move on to our next topic, because you did bring up something interesting within that last kind of uh, talking point that you had about, you know, the chill of decommitment de season and guys kind of looking around at some point in your class. And maybe they're taking other official visits down the line. Well, one big USC commit did, in fact, take an unofficial visit uh, this past weekend. That would be Gardenia Sarah, four-star cornerback Dakota Fields, who is one of the gems of this 2024 class. He was a guy USC we talked about during his official visit or going to his official visit that this was, you know, one of those guys you probably would love to have or had to have one of those Marcellus Williams or Dakota Fields, one of the local four-star cornerbacks. And lo and behold, USC got both of them. So those were two big wins. Field was a massive one over Oregon, who for the most part, we felt that the Ducks were the lead fields but usc and lincoln riley and dante williams did a really good job of surging last year and making him think about staying home more and more and more and they were able to close it he was in the closer category and they closed it in his june official visit 
and he was a big win. Fields went ahead and canceled his Oregon official visit for June and canceled a bunch of or his other visits, and he looked like a solid, very solid commitment for USC and as one of the leader leaders in terms of recruiting for that class. But USC fans have uh, were worrying all weekend with him going up to Oregon for their, uh, I believe it's called their Saturday Saturday night live event. Uh, Oregon staff was relentless and keeping up the communication. They were able to pick up a little bit of wind there and getting fields on campus and take an unofficial visit. I'm not sure if it's really a quote-unquote unofficial visit as we've uh, mentioned several times in this podcast about what an unofficial visit means these days in in the age of NIL. But Dakota Fields went out to Oregon this past weekend. And yeah, I think uh, a little USC fans were not sleeping that well. We're not sleeping well this uh, past weekend, Gerard. Well, the interesting thing that you point out about Dakota Nelson, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I mean, Dakota, Dakota Nelson, Dakota Fields, Dakota Fields um, is going back a bit in his recruitment and going back to when we originally talked to him as a sophomore and he was all Oregon at that point. He had been up to Oregon already unofficially, had a very good relationship with Demetrius Martin. And then they hired uh, Jamil Wadu up there, who we also had a good relationship with. He was feeling Oregon a lot. It wasn't until fast forward to really, I think it was that sophomore junior uh, camp at USC that he went to. And the elite camp at USC was the first opportunity that he had to really be around Dante Williams and the coaching staff for a prolonged period of time. He had gone, I think, to a couple games, but really was just at that game and then just would leave. You know, there was no, like, going back to the locker room and hanging out. It it was just not a very personal It was a surface-level relationship. Yeah, with USC at that point. So it was really that summer with the elite camp where he got to be on campus and he got to hang out with Dante Williams. And all of a sudden, things changed. Now, they changed to the point where it was – USC and Oregon neck and neck, I didn't feel like at that point, all of a sudden, USC has this commanding lead. Then you go during the season and he goes back up to Oregon. And it was USC out of sight, out of mind. I mean, he had completely basically forgotten about USC at that point because we had spoken to him. And I think you even spoke to him during the playoffs. Can't remember if it was you or JP. But he just didn't have much to say about USC. It was pretty vague, pretty general. Yeah, it's a hometown school. It's cool. It's pretty close. Uh, Dante Williams is cool. It wasn't very specific as you talked to or- about Oregon with him, and his eyes lit up, and it was like, wow, okay, so Oregon's back in the lead now. You know, Oregon's got this commanding lead, and so really up until like the late spring, and he'd taken you know a couple unofficial visits. He'd been up there, and he'd been at USC for a practice, and. USC kind of did build some momentum, and this is really talking to him in hindsight. You know, when did USC become more of a factor for you? And he said kind of like right up before the official visit. And I talked to some other sources that kind of verified that. You know, he he seemed to be really much more, as he got serious about what am I going to do this summer? Because I want to make a commitment. I want to be over with this. What am I really going to do? That's when USC started to become more of a factor. My hunch is that's because his family sort of became a little more like, okay, Dakota, 
let's sit down and talk about this. Let's look at all the pros and cons instead of just, you know, how you're feeling because you went here or you went there, you're wearing these gloves this week, you know, sort of the more superficial type of stuff. And so USC got the momentum and they got him committed. Now, I think I said on the podcast the following week, that's a huge commitment for USC. This is one of the first sort of guys that, you know, you can kind of help build your class around one of the, you know, kind of real special type players in this class. It's pretty surprising that they get him and he shuts down his recruitment. That was the surprising part. And I didn't think that was necessarily a good thing because I thought to myself, and I think I said it out loud, it might have been better for USC to encourage him to take that official visit to Oregon so they know where he really stands. You've taken that visit to Oregon. That's the official visit. It's not still hanging out there. At some it's point always in the season. back of his mind. Yeah, it's like it's there. Okay, now what do you think about USC? And, you know, previous coaching staffs at USC had done that. Even, you know, Clay Helton's coaching staff, they'd be like, hey, we know you love this school. We know you had a great visit. But if you want to take other visits, go take those visits and see how you feel about USC after you take those trips. And certainly it's a bit of a gamble because you never know what those schools are going to say and what they're going to do. But you do at least know at that point coming out of the summer where you truly stand in those recruitments. So Dakota now goes and takes that unofficial visit to Oregon. He still has an official visit and he'll probably mm-hmm. take it to Oregon. There'll probably be some excuse like, Oh, it's a big game. You got to come up here and you got to see this environment. It'll and be so this, for the USC game. This maybe possibly <laughs> this will be sort of something that's a bit open-ended now instead of, wow, look at Dakota fields. He's one of the most solidly committed players in the program, on the commit list, you know, he's recruiting other players to USC, sort of that whole narrative changes a bit. And it just kind of is what it is. You know, USC always had to continue to recruit him. But now I think things are, even though I, he's still committed and, 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 you know, quote unquote, feels pretty good and strong about USC, uh, there's definitely sort of that cloud hanging over. And we'll see, you know, I, we talked about it last weekend. USC has a great opportunity this season to play themselves into more recruitments. You know, if you really start to turn heads and you get to a college football playoff, people are a little more aware that USC could be on the come up. You know, last season, I don't think anybody was serious about it. I know we had some guys that were committed. Like, I think USC can win a national championship. And you're like, okay, but really, (laughs) let's be be realistic here. And, and, And most of the time it was, well, Seven, eight wins would be really cool. Like, I mean, if they could double their wins from last year, that would be a step in the right direction. And a I think sexy every- number, Gerard, sexy number. We talked about it. And and yeah, and we agreed with that. I think just most people that kind of had any type of awareness, understanding of college football, understanding of the roster and what had to be done culture wise felt like eight and nine wins. That would be very, very solid for Lincoln Riley. They go in 11 games. And despite obviously not having a good showing in the bowl game, they kind of put everybody on notice now this season. So I think that's true with the recruits. You get the ESPNs and the CBSs and the sort of more echo chamber of mainstream media talking about USC. And it kind of gets to the kids a little bit. You know, they, they, they are even subconsciously sort of aware of, oh, yeah, USC. Yeah, they, they were pretty good last year. Oh, for real? Yeah, yeah. For real? I'm going to go check them out this year. Yeah, I'm going to see what's up instead of. 
yo, man, USC was dookie last year, man. I'm not going to go see them. Like, are you kidding me? There are like 12 people there, man. I ain't going to that game. I'm going up to see Oregon, man. I want to see it's this lit up in Oregon. That's the whole mentality in Southern California for a lot of recruits the past four or five years. So, yeah, now they're on notice a little more. And so USC does have that opportunity um, to, to, to play themselves into more recruitments and maybe win some recruitments on the football field. And this is a, a perfect example of, you know, this is a kid that is going to probably watch that USC Oregon game. And if USC has a bad showing, it's probably not going to go well for them on the recruiting trail with Dakota Fields. But if they're able to go out there and, and play like a college football playoff, you know, caliber team, then they got this one in the bag and they, and they may have more that they're able to get into um, because guys feel like, you know what, the development is there and, and your chance to win national championships. Um, the conversation of NIL will still be a factor with some kids. There are some kids that are going to go to some boo-boo schools because they're going to get money right up front and their parents are going to be able to move and they're going to get a house. And that's just what they're looking for. That's important to them. And again, I don't want to demonize that. I don't want to make that, you know, like, oh, shame on them. You know, you, you should be thinking about 40 years instead of four years. Listen, man, I, I, I don't have your bank account. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, you know, I, I don't want to sit here and try to tell people how they should dictate their economics. And I'm sure there's a lecture there from, from people that are smarter than me about, well, you know, your education is going to go so much further. You need to go to a good education. That's true just in general. I mean, we see a lot of those decisions where you go, okay, you've got this, these five schools in your top five, these are your hats on the table and you know where these schools land academically. And some of these schools are not quite like the others and it doesn't always matter. It doesn't always come out like, Oh, I'm going to go to this school because you know, it's a 40 year decision, not a four year decision. So the same can be said for NIL and what have you. But again, I, I don't think it's my place or really anybody's place to sit there and say, oh, you made a bad decision because you're, you know, you're looking out for, you know, the right now, right here guarantee instead of the potential opportunities maybe two years from now. You know, it's very easy to say that until somebody blows an ACL and then it's like, yeah, man, you're $500,000 poorer than you would have been. So again, it's one of those things where uh, it's very easy to sit here in armchair the NIL process. Gerard, unless there's anything else you want to add about Mr. DK, I think it's time to talk about some target lists. Let's move on to the 2025 target list to be specific. And it is relevant because uh, August August 1st, I almost said 21st, I don't know why, but August 1st was the first day that USC or USC coaches, uh, college coaches could talk to and reach out to 2025 prospects across the country. We see this happen every year. You probably see uh, tweets from uh, uh, sophomores or, excuse me, rising juniors about the the clock emoji, like it's almost time. Let's see who's real, Gerard. Let's see who's real. So they they they're waiting for midnight when uh, coaches can finally DM them and text them and all those kinds of things. So it is it was relevant for you to put your 2025 updated target list on uh, August 1st, Gerard. So I'm, I'm proud of you. It all came together on a perfect day. Well, you're, you're Mr. Social Media. So, I mean, were there any even 24 offers 
that you saw, which kind of caught your eye? I mean, the guys that USC have committed, obviously get those official scholarship offers. There are some other kids like a Peyton Woodyard that got an official scholarship offer from USC. It is interesting because there are some kids and you don't know if they just didn't tweet it or they right. didn't get an official scholarship offer. Right. And, and to point that out, can you explain what an official offer is? Nothing. It, it, it's really nothing. <laughs> it, it's honestly, it's a graphic. I, I don't know that it means anything. It's not binding. It, it, it still offers, you know, I had this uh, conversation on the first style uh, the other week, just kind of talking about what scholarship offers mean and, you know, what they mean to the student athlete is one thing. I, I'm sure that's diminishing over the years because even they are starting to realize that just because of your scholarship offer doesn't mean that school actually wants to recruit you, let alone sign you. Because there's kids that have gotten scholarship offers from USC, from Alabama. Alabama has something like 244 scholarship offers out for the 2024 class. Alabama is not going to take 244 players. Okay. That's, they, they take maybe not even 10% of that in a normal class. So that in and of itself should tell you exactly what a scholarship offer really means to the school. And in the bigger picture. Uh, so, you know, when it comes to official offers, it's just a difference between, you know, a position coach and somebody saying, hey, man, we want to offer you a scholarship. And it being a great moment right then and there. But whether those coaches from that school are going to continue to contact you and recruit you and want you is another can of worms. It's, it's, it's sometimes they offer scholarships. And a lot of times this happens during the May evaluation period. And they, college coach visits a school and they do an evaluation and they tell the head coach, Hey, we want to offer that kid scholarship. Oh, that's amazing. And there's not even really a phone call. There's not a conversation with the head coaching staff. It's just a blessed AGA, uh, Oh, glory to God, you know, blessed hashtag. I got a scholarship offer from here and it goes in this database and the kids got 36 offers from division one schools in the database where people have to, from a fan perspective, understand where these scholarship offers are meaningless is trying to equate uh, talent and availability based on those scholarship offers. Because what happens is, well, this guy's a three-star, but he's got an Alabama offer. Well, I just told you, Alabama offered 244 players. And I know there's more than that in each class, something like 5,000 kids uh, in the 24-7 sports database with scholarship offers. But that is still clearly an overabundance, and you don't know if that scholarship offer came with any real uh, stock put into the ability and the availability. Was it a committable offer? You know, do they really want that player, and were they willing to take that player if he said, you know, coach, I really love Alabama, I want to commit. You know, were they like, oh man, awesome, we'd love to have you, or was it, well? hold on a second. We want to, you know, see what other guys we have at the position. You know, I mean, we want you to experience the process. Okay. You should take some more visits. And they just basically slow play them until they realize, yeah, we offered the kid, but I mean, we got like three, four other guys ahead of them that we like a lot more and we think we'll get one or two of them. So this dude is a plan B or a plan C. So certainly, you know, when you ask that question, what does an official offer mean? It's, it's a little bit of a filtering process because clearly there's less official offers that go out. But, you know, what does it really mean at the end of the day? Not as much as the letter of intent that schools send out a week or so before 
the national signing day. That's what really means something because once you sign that letter of intent, you fax it in, that school's they, they are binded to you, you know. So that's the real sort of wait a minute. Oh, wait, wait, wait minute. for it. Wait, wait for it. it. Wait it. Because only one thing counts in this life get them to sign on the line which is dotted. Letter of intent, baby. Which the is dotted. Of intent. So that that's dotted. Yes. Really means something. And the official visits mean something. That is another sort of weeding out because schools can only have so many official visitors. And it's a lot of money. You know, there's there's millions of dollars that are going into these big golden hour type events. So certainly that's the priority creme de la creme of the recruiting target list for that particular cycle. So that really means a bit more than, than all of this. But I, I mean, it kind of sort of is interesting to see, you know, who gets the graphics and who puts them out, et cetera. But yeah, at the end of the day, is it like this mon- mon- monumental sort of separation uh, between the have and have nots? No, not not really. Yeah, so the official offers that I saw, uh, a, a chunk of the 2024 commits did post it out. Marcellus Williams had his official offer out. Braylon Connolly quote tweeted Marcellus's official offer. I that probably doesn't count as his. Peyton Woodyard, as you mentioned, the not a commitment, but he posted his USC official offer joey ocean aka joey olson as his uh, government name posted his official offer uh cameron crawford's mother casey crawford posted uh their official offer uh brian jackson posted his uh makai sanai posted his hayden treader posted his and then the cilantro boy himself marquise gallegos also posted his and his had him with the uh the mexican flag so double cilantro boy there those are the ones that I saw. Again, not everyone posts their official offers. Chris Cole, the 2024 linebacker, did post a USC kind of graphic GIF kind of deal. I don't think it was an official offer, but it looks like they did have some contact with him on August 1st. So I'm not sure if that's an official offer or whatnot, but it looks like they were showing him some love at least on August 1st. Yeah, Chris Cole, interesting prospect and target. Um you know, we'll get into probably talking about the linebacker position because there were a few scholarship offers that went out in the 2024 class. But before getting into 2024, I guess we should finish off a little bit of our conversation about the 2025 target list. Yeah, you you put out those offer or not offers, those target lists, updated them. And just if you want to see, you know, a bunch of the guys that got contacted on August 1st by the USC staff, I, I put a whole thread on the peristyle with every name that I could find on social media. Again, these were not all the kids. These were just the kids that wanted to put it on social media, but there were a ton of names out there that, that put out uh, their, their contact, like who was showing love, sending little graphics. And I think for a lot of it was just a little bit of a graphics and stuff. So yeah, if you want to see that, I have a, a full list on the, uh, the peristyle that you can find, but Gerard, why don't you walk me through or walk us through this uh, updated 2025 target list? What are the high points? I know they're VIP, so you don't want to give too much away, but what can we uh, glean from this update? Well, we just had a free VIP day the other this day. This is true. August so, August 1st, also the fee, the free VIP day. So a lot of filthy casuals were coming to the, to the site. They got to glean some glances at the <laughs> target list. And I think uh, as we talked about August 1st, it's, you know, first contact period for this class. So just any communication contact is is going to be big. 
for this class, the, as you say, you know, rising sophomores that have turned into juniors now. I think, you know, among the offensive target list, the one thing that still stands out, no quarterback offer. That's interesting. It does lend credence to the thought that Julian Lewis is going to reclassify and potentially end up in the 2025 class. So, you know, if that happens, very obvious. Again, it might be a case of USC putting all their eggs in that basket. Um, You would tend to feel maybe a little better about the eggs in that basket just because of the amount of time Julian Lewis has spent at USC. I mean, we bumped into him. Say bumped into him. I mean, we didn't bump into him. But uh, JP Five Star uh, saw him at the uh, camp. You know, he was over at the track field, and I think JP was shooting some modern day seven-on-seven uh, seven at uh, the Trojan seven-on-seven seven tournament and saw this kid who was decked out in Trojan gear and comes to go, this guy looks familiar, and uh, Texas text us and said, uh, I think this is Julian Lewis. Is he here? And, yeah, sure enough, you know, we checked it out, and it was like, yeah, that's that's him. He's, he's actually there. And he was hanging out with some modern-day people, which was interesting. We thought, oh, what's, what's going on here? I, I think he has a connection to the modern-day staff. Uh, one of the new coaches at Modern Day was uh, Julian Lewis's seven-on-seven coach, so there is a little bit of a relationship there. Um, but nevertheless, th- that would lead more credence to him reclassifying, ending up in that 2025 class, and that would obviously be a mega franchise-type target for USC in the 2025 class at quarterback. And that would be as much as USC put into Dylan Royola. I mean, it. It doesn't. It pales compared in comparison <laughs> to Julian Lewis. I mean, it just pales in comparison to. I, I think fit-wise, everything. I mean, Julian Lewis, uh, who you know we will probably start calling Juju here as we start Juju. to talk about him more. Um, Juju's a a perfect fit for that offense. Um, just you know, potentially a generational type of talent. I mean, his film looks very very good. He's Playing out a little smaller division, it's not big boy uh, high school football in Georgia, but he is absolutely impressive uh, from that standpoint. Just arm strength, mobility, uh, being able to create uh, within the pocket, whether to run or just to extend the play. Um, all the things that you see really, you know, kind of from Caleb uh, Williams, not not quite built like Caleb Williams. I mean, Caleb Williams looks like a running back now, but even, you know, at the high school level, I, I can't recall if I saw Caleb Williams – that early on in his high school career. Um, but I know, you know, it's like a junior going on and senior. He already had a pretty, pretty good build to him. Uh, Julian Lewis kind of built a little more like uh, uh, just a quarterback, you know, just, just a little leaner um, kind of, I guess, you know, kind of across a little bit between maybe a Caleb Williams and a Bryce Young. Um, in terms That's of a good physicality. Comparison. Yeah. In, in terms of even how he plays a bit. So th- that would be a huge get for USC if he does reclassify. Another thing I think offensively that jumped out to me is the lack of wide receiver offers. <laughs> I mean, mm. US, USC just doesn't have uh, many wide receivers offered at the, in the 2025 class, you know, um, I think it's nine right now that they've got uh, offered scholarships. And so that's a pretty small number um, USC is going to lose a, a few guys. You know, it's it's always hard to to know kind of how that shakes out with transfers and everything else. But I mean, the guy at the top of the list has to be Philip Bell, and I think they feel good about Philip Bell. Uh, Ohio State's recruiting the hell out of Philip Bell as well, though. And Ohio State has been money 
recruiting the wide receiver position. I mean, they have been very, very good. I mean, USC has been good. Ohio State's been great. You know, Brian Hartline recruits the wide receiver position there, and he's kind of gotten his pick of guys over the last several years. And so that's going to be a, a tough head-to-head battle for USC. Um, they've got a couple offers out to, to Texas. Um, yeah, I, it's interesting, just the, the lack of guys, especially when you look at uh, Marcus Harris down there at modern day, 2025 wide receiver, very good wide receiver, a guy who kind of bursted onto the scene last season and was very productive for uh, modern day. Now, modern day went to the seven on tournament. I can't remember if Marcus Harris actually participated. I think he participated in that tournament. I have, I'd have to ask JP because I didn't watch modern day very much that day. Um, but he has taken some time off during the summer. There's some other uh, tournaments that we've watched where he hasn't um, been uh, playing, but he is a very good wide receiver. And certainly from what I've seen a USC level, wide receiver, but USC has not offered him a scholarship. So they have been a little bit stingy here with the wide receiver offers, which is which is kind of interesting. Now, granted, that is one of those positions, kind of, kind of sort of like quarterback, where you see the development and you see the production on the field. You see, you know, Lincoln Riley and the coaches, Dennis Simmons, uh, Luke Heward, and everything that they do. As a Trojan fan, you just don't get very worried about it. You know, even though you can look at it and go, oh, man, you know, where are the numbers at? Where's the quarterback in the 2024 class? Where's the scholarship offer for the quarterback in the 2025 class? When you have proven coaching at that position and you have proven production at that position, it creates a lot more patient within the fan base. So I, I just it hasn't been one of those things where people are, you know, getting on the ledge here. Oh, my gosh, what's going to happen at that position in 2025? I think most Trojan fans feel confident it's going to sort itself out. I think one of the uh, the big things about 2025, especially locally, is that there is a lot of good defensive talent in this class, especially with the two kind of big linebackers, even if you want to call it Nasir Wyatt, a linebacker, Russian, whatever. But Nasir Wyatt, Madden Faramino, Farah, no, correct me. How do, how, do, how, do I, how do I say that? Ferriamo. Ferriamo, excuse me, Madden. Ferriamo and then Noah McHale. Those are kind of the three big front players, linebackers, that uh, USC has has the top of their board for this 2025 class and guys that USC is sitting very pretty well pretty well with, uh, you know, going to the, their junior years. Yeah, not a lot of defensive line offers, no local defensive line offers, which, you know, kind of par for the course. You know that there's not a lot of those kind of high five-star guys that are going to be in Southern California or California in general when it comes to defensive linemen. Um, it is and always will be a region where you got to find more guys like Christian Rector and more guys like a Mike Patterson that might not be, you know, four-star, five-star guys at the top of the list, but are guys that you can develop. And, and you, if you've got the right coaching, you can get some good players, but you've got to be patient with them. And I think Sean Nua has done a very good job, you know, kind of cultivating scholarship offers and, and, and doing a good job recruiting, you know, not just with uh, defensive linemen, but offensive linemen. And so, there's not a lot of defensive line offers out there and no, you know, defensive line offers to any local players that you go, okay, there's some low hanging fruit. Um, not that, you know, there seems to be a lot of low hanging fruit at defensive line anymore. I mean, you've got Aiden Breeland in the 2024 class right there in modern day. who has been a recruit for the last four years. And, you know, he's a guy that has yet to officially visit USC and that's going to be a, a bit of a tough pull looking at it right now. Um, but nevertheless, 
kind of looks like they're going to have to go outside the region. Um, one interesting player, though, that is local that is right now ranked, he might be ranked even as a linebacker right now, is Hayden Lowell, who just got a scholarship offer uh, from USC. I don't know if it was the end of May or in June, but was fairly recent. But he's a big boy. I mean, he's a big kid. He's a legit 6'4", about 240 pounds. A guy that when you watch him on film, you know, again, West Coast kids are not always, you know, coming out of the high school ranks at 285, 300 pounds. This kid's 240, but he plays with his hands on the ground. He's more of a five technique, uh, but he's a bully. I mean, he plays very physically, and he looks like a guy to me that uh, could potentially move inside uh, if, if not play five technique. Like I said, I think he's ranked as a linebacker as an edge. He is, he is ranked as a linebacker, listed as a defensive lineman. So you yeah, a little okay. uh, inconsistency okay. with this ranking. So that could just is, be hasn't updated his D-line status or, or what have you, but yeah. The bane of my existence for uh, the 2025 target list. Yeah, we have several guys that are rated at one position, but then categorized in another position. And Hayden Lowe was one of those kids that, I mean, when you watch his film, he looks more like a defensive lineman. You know, even yeah. though the size is not necessarily there, he looks more like a defensive lineman. He doesn't play as a stand-up uh, linebacker at all from any of the film that I saw. We saw him in person. I think you saw him. Um, I was ranting and raving about, I was like, who is who this is guy? He is, he was at the uh, seven on seven passing tournament. Correct. Yeah. And he was just a massive, I thought it was a coach to be honest. And I'm like, no, wait, he's wearing like the gear. This guy's going to play. So yeah, I mean, he was just a massive, you know, high school player. He was yoked out, looked every bit of six foot four, maybe even a little bit bigger than that, but yeah, 245, 250, what what have you. He was a a impressive looking guy and got offered by USC and Alabama on the same day. Also has been picked up offers, also picked up offers in the summer from Notre Dame and Oklahoma. So he is uh kind of blowing up among power five schools right now. Yeah, that's a kid that we sit here today and talk about as, you know, potentially a defensive end type at 240 pounds, but could easily be, you know, 280 and, and find himself being, yeah. you know, one of the more coveted three techniques in college football. So that is definitely a name to keep an eye on. Uh, he did get a tour of the school. So he's definitely been eyeballed and sort of, um, you know, a standout for USC here uh, after that scholarship offer. So they are circling the wagons a bit in his recruitment. I think other things are just, Kind of reviewing the high interest targets in that 2025 class, uh, we have modern day Russian Nasir Wyatt. Now, Nasir has been a bit of a you know, whatever school he's seen last, he kind of talks up the most. Took an unofficial visit to USC uh, late in the spring, and you know, he was he, he had his uh USC tracksuit on, his, his gloves, he was loving USC. You know, that was his first time really being able to hang out. Uh, with his family, with the coaches, and and they really loved him up, and he felt like there was a real connection there. And I think, you know, USC is definitely among his top three schools right now. Now, you go up to Oregon, he'll go to some other schools, and right now USC has not had a very uh, good uh, success ratio in recruiting modern-day athletes. Um, and he will be a guy that uh, is going to be there with, like, Zabian Brown and Aiden Breland, and he's going to be another modern-day guy that there's going to be a lot of competition for. Uh, but that is a player that right here, right now, I would say has a high interest in, in USC. And the interesting thing about him also, and we talked about this maybe last week or the week before, is just where he ends up playing. You know, is he 
a guy that's that is six two and he just kind of puts on some weight and he's trying to play in that rush end spot, or is he a guy that kind of grows a little more and he's on the bigger you know side, the the lengthier side of a six three, maybe two hundred thirty pounds, and then you look and say, okay, maybe he can play at the line of scrimmage. It has a lot to do with arm length and wingspan, etc. Uh, you got to be a little bigger and taller to play against those offensive tackles. Of Jay Sarah, linebacker, it's a five-star linebacker, Madden Ferriamo, who uh, you talked about a little bit, uh, being a guy, another kid that right now is more of a local recruit. He seems like he's more comfortable with potentially staying on the West Coast. Um, he had uh, a cousin that uh, actually was recruited and played a little bit at USC, and then uh, his other cousin, uh, Vincent, actually played volleyball uh, at USC. I think that was his cousin or his brother. I, I forget off the top of my head. But he has some family ties. USC also has some family ties. His sister uh, was uh, a very, very good pitcher. She might actually be a senior this year for UCLA, like a very, very good pitcher. So, you know, the family, uh, he's had, uh, I think, his brother and his sister and then his cousins and his uncles. They, they've all got, you know, UCLA or USC. So uh, he's kind of getting pulled from both ends right now, but seems like a guy that, you know, that's sort of the schools that he's familiar with and he really likes those schools. We'll see if that changes, you know, he gets hooked up with somebody and they want to get him on some unofficial visits and, you know, pay his way. And then all of a sudden, you know, you start to get Tennessee and uh, Florida state and Miami or whoever, you know, starts to get more involved in his recruitment. Um, Bonita linebacker, Noah McHale is uh, another player that, um, actually, I think he just got a recent crystal ball to USC from Greg Biggins. He's been at USC a bunch. He actually made it out to USC for that 6 a.m. practice. Which, Do you uh, know how so- hard it is to get a high schooler <laughs> up before like nine? And to- Well, I-, I, I would say it's actually for high school football players and guys that have been a part of the passing circuit. It's actually not really as hard as you think it is because, I mean, even – playing high school football, like during the summer, you got two days and you got to be on campus at 7 a.m. I don't know anybody that practices any later than that with two days. And so you do got to be up early sometimes to play football. And if you're part of the passing league circuit, all those games start at like eight o'clock in the morning, nine o'clock. Right. But this is also like his day off. No, but that's true. And that does speak to something that does speak to his interest in USC. He wants to see the team. He wants to see what's going on. I mean, I would have said, hey, dude, wait a few days and go see him and play in pads. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you wouldn't want to see. Now, maybe he comes back to see him play in pads. I think USC is the lead dog for him. And he is a kid that has seen everybody. He's seen every school like twice. He's been <laughs> Alabama, Arkansas, Texas. I mean, he's been all over the place. And so um, he has seen every school twice, but he's seen USC double the amount. Yeah. For sure. That is, I mean, I remember, you know, bringing up Aiden Breland again, there was this comment like, yeah, you know, probably seen USC the most. And it's like, yeah, well, you've seen them three times and <laughs> you've seen everybody else twice. Right. But with Noah McHale, it's like, it's actually, he's seen USC a bunch of times, you know, he's been on campus a bunch and he has a very good relationship with the coaching staff. And I think he's, he's a little bit different. You know, he's, he's a guy that's playing up there at Bonita high school, which is a beautiful high school. And I've had conversations with him about this, but he's been recruited high school wise by IMG and modern day and everybody else, but he's chosen to go to Bonita because that's where his comfort level is. And that kind of speaks to me, to him as a recruit, you know, there's going to be those factors um, that are important, but everybody sort of has a list of what is more important than the other. And so the fact that he's stuck out at Bonita and, 
you know, wants to, to be there. That's where his friends are and that's where he feels comfortable. I mean, I think that sort of mentality bodes well for USC because I think those things align well with, with USC and sort of what he wants in a college. So another kid with, with high interest in USC, I, I would put Mission Viejo cornerback Dejan Lee uh, in that high interest list for USC, uh, ranked as a composite five-star. He's young. He's very young, and even some of his teammates were giving him a hard time about being a five-star when we were out there watching him at the Battle at the Beach. You know, he had uh, he, he got burned a couple times, and uh, he was actually playing receiver a bit to start out, and he had a drop, and, like, the whole sideline was like, what, five-star? Who's a five-star? You can't be a five-star and drop footballs. And so they, they were they were kind of joshing him a little bit. Hey, Gerard, I'm just saying there's no pressure as a one-star. There's no pressure as a one-star. There's no pressure as a one-star. Well, tell tell him like it is. A lot of pressure as a five-star. And he was feeling it. And again, he's a younger guy. Hasn't had a ton of reps um, at Mission Viejo. And there's a little bit more put probably put on potential here. 6'4", 185 pounds. Moves very, very well uh, at that size. uh, But certainly not the sort of polished... um, you know, what you see is what you're going to get first two years in college. You know, he's definitely got some progression and potential that he has to fulfill and kind of work to get there. I mean, we saw him playing across from Devin Sanchez for the Trillion Boys at the OT7 tournament this summer. And both those guys got a shot at playing against Jeremiah Smith, number one ranked wide receiver in the nation, committed to Ohio State. And there was some differing results there. You know, Devin Sanchez, you know, both those guys had passes completed on them, but it was some of the passes that didn't even go to Jeremiah Smith where you saw Dijon Lee swimming a bit. You know, he was out there like, oh, my gosh, this dude is big and he's fast and he runs really crisp routes. And he got lost a couple of times, whereas Devin Sanchez was out there and you could just see he was a little more composed. He kind of seen it before. And you could tell just by the way he played some of those balls. And he actually had a great pass breakup at the end of that game, which uh, Trillion Boys were able to hang on to beat South Florida Express at Jeremiah Smith because they threw a 50-50 ball. And uh, and Sanchez just, you know, he basically he, he knew what was coming, rocked back in his stance, and he, he knew the corner of the end zone. And he just he didn't even play up on him or anything. He basically saw the angle and the whole time is just like, all right, I got to get to that spot. When I get to that spot, I got to jump and I got to do everything I can to knock the ball out of this man's hands. And that's what he did. So uh, one of those things where, again, I think, you know, a lot of talent there with Dejan Lee, but also some football and experience that's ahead of him. Uh, Mission Viejo also got a very good transfer at wide receiver recently from Philip Bell, another guy that's in the five-star league, uh, went and transferred into Alemany on this past offseason. He's originally from Central California. I think he played at Christian Brothers up there in Stockton and transferred down here, was playing for premium, was playing for Trillian Boys. Uh, he kind of jumped around the different seven-on-seven teams. Uh, very, very good receiver. Talked about a little bit about him and how Ohio State is really pushing for him pretty hard. You know, he's one of the few guys that USC has offered uh, at wide receiver and, and one of the only guys locally that they're really recruiting hard. Uh, Philip Bell, a guy I would say that USC has uh, in in that sort of high interest level. Uh, but like I said, Ohio State's there. And it could be one of those things where it's Ohio State, USC could still end up being Ohio State. Doesn't mean he didn't have high interest in USC. It's just 
he had more interest in Ohio State. So we'll see how that one goes. Modern-day uh, nickelback cornerback Chuck McDonald, another guy, been USC a bit. Um, Dick likes USC a lot. I think USC likes him a lot. I like him a lot. He is a sort of nickel corner. He is a guy that uh, plays over the slot a lot for modern day. Doesn't get as, as much shine, I think, because of that. But, you know, physically we've seen him uh, on the track during this offseason and just, you know, on the camp circuit, physically really filling out, looking like a, a guy that, you know, just physical, aggressive, has those traits of a safety but then has the speed to be able to play out there against a, a, a pure wide receiver so uh, another good player that i think has uh usc uh, in high regards and then uh, finally sierra canyon athlete uh four-star jayon young uh, out of sierra canyon um he is uh not especially tight with the current commit um jordan xavier jordan uh, excuse me uh for usc in the 2024 class uh, but has you know chatted with him a little bit uh, and, and they are uh, teammates right now at Sierra Canyon. With Jan, I mean, he can play receiver. I think he's more of a defensive back. I think that's kind of where USC sees him um, playing cornerback. He's he's long. Uh, he's just kind of starting to fill out. Watched him a little bit at the USC 7-on-7 tournament. Looked really good in that tournament. And uh, so another guy that's uh, sort of a little bit of a tweener prospect. But like I said, I, I, I kind of think – cornerback ends up being his position it's a deep deep class at cornerback i mean we haven't mentioned guys like darius dixon um uh, aaron white there's a there's a plethora of very good defensive backs uh, in the 2025 class so usc's gonna have some options there and we'll see how that shakes out we'll see you know how they approach this 2025 class in terms of getting commits they had three commits in the 2024 class going into the summer which was surprising to us uh, we'll see if uh, they want to have a, a little bigger class going in the summer for that 2025 class. Gerard, thank you for sharing with us your thoughts on the 2025 updated target list. Again, you can check those out on newspeople.com. They are VIP, so hopefully they're one of the things that can encourage you to sign up. We're having a sale right now. But Gerard, I think it's time we kind of hit our last point before our break, and that is new 2024 scholarship offers. now. We've done scholarship offers in the past, but I think a lot of people were like, ah, we don't really, you know, care about hearing about the new scholarship offers. But I think it's important to talk about it when it's part of a specific kind of pivot. And I think it's I think it's important when it's the here and now <laughs> yes. when it's, you know, the class of 2026 and 25 or it's early in the offseason. But when you have specific storylines, which we've been following for months now, and then you interject a new scholarship offer and there are not a lot of scholarship offers that are going to go out at this point in time for the current class it does matter and, and people are uh, rightfully so a little more interested in it yeah so linebacker is the position where we have seen this kind of mini run of offers in the 2024 class usc offered four linebackers from across the country and we're going to talk a little bit about each of them right here now but it's obviously usc is pivoting off their first options at the position. Obviously, Kingston, Kingston, Viliamu Asa, you know, committed to Notre Dame. Uh, Ty Anthony Smith went ahead and, could we even call him a, a flip? Uh, flipped his silent commitment to Texas A&M. Those were the two big priority targets for USC. So reshaping the board with these four new offers. So let's kind of get into these. The first one we'll talk about is three-star Arkansas linebacker, Wyatt Simmons, six foot three, two hundred and fifteen pounds, plays out of Harding, 
Academy, the number 757 overall prospect in the 24-7 sports composite, the number 68 linebacker. He has offers. He has a pretty good offer list from likes of Arkansas, Auburn, Clemson, Florida State, Miami, Oklahoma, Ole Miss, Texas, SMU. Um, So a a good amount of high-end Power 5 offers. Uh, Finishes junior year with 84 tackles, 15 tackles for loss, six sacks. Uh, pick and two fumble recoveries, along with two defensive touchdowns, and he's a two-way player for Hardy Academy. Also competes in track and field. Gerard, what stands out about him to you? Uh, obviously, I think we can tell why uh, Coach Brian Odom offered this player because he feels very old school. Yeah, the true kind of Mike linebacker of this group, and watching his tape, it looks sped up. And I don't mean that as an accusation. Chris saw that on the docket. I, just put <laughs> I was that like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> And Chris goes, whoa, hold whoa. on now. We're going to be sued. Let me get legal on this. Can we say Cause, this? Because there are kids that do speed up their huddle. Oh, right? yeah. That's been done in the past. And, and yeah. I don't I don't mean that. It just he looks twitchy. He looks fast. The, the tape is not sped up. It might be low frame rate on the camera, which can sort of make things look a little. Let, more let's not get into the the uh, the weeds the of low frame. Yes, let's not get into the the frame rate. We'll spend twenty minutes on frame. If rates. it's not thirty frames, it can kind of change what it looks like. Um, but uh, it definitely makes up a lot of ground. I mean, he gets sideline to sideline quick. Uh, he's very sudden in uh, his tackle. Is very violent at the point of contact. And so a guy that, you know, has decent size to him. Now, playing in Arkansas, I can't tell you what the competition level was like. Um, definitely a bit out there in terms of that, uh, trying to, you know, compare him to whatever local player, fill in the blank, uh, that you would. But definitely a bit more old school. And from what I've heard, a bit more old school in terms of his approach to recruiting as well, uh, trying to get a hold of him and contact him. You know, he's not much into recruiting. Uh, It's going to be maybe an uphill battle trying to recruit him. From what I understand, if you're USC, he does have some relationships built in with some other staffs. And there might be some loyalty there. So we'll see if USC is able to get him on campus. I mean, that's going to be the first thing is try to get him in for an official visit. Uh, If indeed, you know, USC is going to follow up in this direction. But certainly of the group. The guy that kind of jumps out at you as, okay, yeah, I mean, he's he's a good-looking linebacker, a, a good-looking athlete, a three-star, but is definitely blowing up. And I think sincerely blowing up and, and some schools are sincerely just kind of looking at him and realizing, okay, oh, Cersei, uh, Arkansas, you know, we, we could very easily overlook that, you know. And so um, there are guys, like we talked about with the scholarship offers and what they mean, there are guys that are just going to get late evaluations like Jackson Dart, you know, that, you know, just pop up on the scene. They're late bloomers. That's a, that's a good thing. That's actually a positive thing from an evaluation note standpoint. Uh, but then there are those other guys which are kind of like manufactured plan B's that you go, oh, no, 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 this guy is really good. We, we, we really he's just a sleeper. And it's like, yeah, but you should have known about that guy already. <laughs> that guy, he's been there. And you, it's it's right. it's giving Clay Helton. It's giving it, Clay it's, Helton. It's vibes of <laughs> Senor Helton going into East Texas and trying to reinvent some players that you could have probably gotten locally, but you don't have the connections locally or the respect locally. So you kind of go and say, hey, no, we're USC. Yeah, Reggie Bush, remember him? Oh, yeah, we, yeah. I mean, we didn't coach him. We don't really know him. Never actually talked to him. But 
he went here and uh, they won national champions then. So, you know, and kids that are in other regions don't keep up with USC. So that's what they remember. And they're like, wow, USC. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I mean, USC is good football, right? Yeah, right. And, then, you know, they kind of have to look around. And then they, when they find out uh, they're not really good anymore, then, you know, things change. But uh, it's one of those things where depending on the level of recruit you're going after, you know, you may have a chance to be able to make a move in that recruitment. So we'll see what happens here. Like I said, a little old school, just not even in terms of just how he plays, but how he's handling the recruiting process. And, uh, you know, USC is going to have to uh, definitely, uh, you know, make a, make a, make a push here against some schools that may have already sort of uh, entrenched themselves in his recruitment. The next linebacker is the highest rated linebacker that USC offered. Actually the first one that kind of started this run. That's four star Kansas linebacker, Michael Boganowski. And I just love saying Boganowski so much uh, out of Junction, Junction city, Kansas, uh, six foot two, 205 pounds. He is a four star in the 24 seven sports composite number three ninety nine overall, the number 35 linebacker and the number one prospect in the state of Kansas. He has a solid offer list, and he's been kind of blowing up as well. Has offers from Kansas, Kansas State, Oklahoma, Stanford, Florida State, Michigan, Nebraska, Oregon State, Tennessee, USC, and Washington have all put the pulled the trigger on offers from him. And he actually tweeted out uh, on August first that you know, on his August first last year for his 2024 class, he didn't get a single text from a coach on August first. So that kind of shows you how far he has come as a prospect and developed into a legitimate power five prospect uh, filled up the stat sheet stat sheet last year, 123 total tackles, 67 solo tackles, three for a loss, four interceptions, a forced fumble, uh, a passing touchdown and two rushing scores kind of sort of his situation. I'm not saying he is tacking Curtis, but his situation, because he plays more of a safety role. He also plays quarterback for his team, very similar to what Tackett did for his high school team Manny last year. So kind of plays deeper than your traditional linebacker and plays as a quarterback kind of running style. So Michael Boganowski, six foot two, 205 pounds, a little lighter than your uh, wide Simmons. Tell me you coached at Oklahoma without telling me you coached <laughs> at Oklahoma, Brian Odom. This is a very sort of Oklahoma type of offer, right? Going into Kansas, uh, going after a kid that uh, kind of uh, under the radar and played, you know, like four different positions in high school, which, you know, it stands to reason and played a lot of quarterback and did play safety, not fast enough to play safety. So you're automatically looking at him sort of at a position, you know, kind of projecting a bit, which uh, a lot of schools, you know, are not going to do immediately. So I, I can see why, Nobody really wanted to jump on him initially, and he's playing in Kansas, you know, and that's obviously not a football um, rich state with talent. So in terms of trying to you know, equate, you know, what he's playing against competition wise and what he's capable of doing at the next level is, again, a little bit of a projection. And so, yeah, tape didn't jump out at me a whole lot, really um, playing linebacker. I mean, I like. The fact that he's versatile and he does those other things, that's always good for a linebacker. Linebacker is a position that there's so much going on. You know, you have to pay attention to your own defensive line. You've got to pay attention to the opposing offensive line. You have to pay attention to the quarterback. You have to make your reads with the running backs. And it's There's a lot to go on. And then if you have a little bit of an idea of the other side of the football and you play quarterback, 
then you kind of know from a read standpoint what you're doing uh, when you're looking at the linebacker position. So there's a game of cat and mouse there. And uh, when you know what the cat is thinking and the mouse are thinking, it does help you as a football player. But I, I think, you know, watching this, some of the safety um, clips and everything, you know, 62, 200 pounds, you're like, okay, he's a strong safety, but not super fast. He's not even really super fast. He doesn't jump out at you too much, even as a linebacker for being 62, 200, not the way that Ty Anthony Smith did. So, yeah, this is an interesting offer. Like I said, very, very Oklahoma type of offer. The next prospect on our list is the shortest of our three our, our offers so far. That's three-star Georgia linebacker Devin Smith out of Brunswick, Georgia. Six foot one, 220 pounds, a consensus three-star prospect, number 559 overall in 24-7 sports composite, number 57 linebacker in the country. He also has a very impressive offer list, but again, as uh, Gerard mentioned with offers offers earlier, you know, they don't really mean much, but he holds offers from Alabama, Auburn, Kentucky, LSU, South Carolina, Duke, Miami, Nebraska, Notre Dame, Ohio State, Ole Miss, Tennessee, Texas A&M. He has 30 plus offers. So a very deep roster missed some games with injury last year, but still racked up 63 total tackles, 10 tackles for a loss, six sacks and three fumble recoveries. Uh, helped the team go 10 and one last season. He seemed to play more on the edge uh, based on his huddle tape. And he's kind of like a uh, more sought off kind of linebacker, Gerard. Yeah. In terms of position, what he does in high school, he's an edge rusher, but he doesn't have the length and size to play on the edge in college. So he will be more of a will linebacker. So even though you look at a guy like Wyatt Simmons and he's playing the position he's going to play in college, uh, or even Michael Boganowski, when he's playing linebacker, he's playing more of a middle type of linebacker uh, with Smith and, and even uh, the, the next linebacker who got offered a scholarship. They're edge guys, but they're going to probably, probably have to move back and play Will or, you know, maybe even play Mike. It's really about size. And with Smith, you know, he's got some good highlights there. Nothing that just kind of blows you out of the water. Definitely looks like a plan B, C type of linebacker. Locally, you know, Georgia, Florida, Florida State doesn't seem like they're super on him right now. Um, LSU has been sniffing around. I think they offered at some point in June. So that's a more recent scholarship offer. Uh, but right now it's more of like a Kentucky type of battle for him with, with some of the schools. And he's more of that sort of tier player uh, with the schools that are recruiting him. If you're judging you know, offers. If you're, you're again, I, I think that's a, a misnomer um, to uh, equate ability and availability, uh, that value based on what the scholarship offer sheet looks like, you know, has Alabama talked to him in the last three months? You know, that would yeah. be, you know, a question. Oh, they offered him, but, you know, have they actually had any real conversations with him? Um, you know, like I said, LSU sniffing around. I think they've got other guys that they're kind of messing around with that they'd like to try to take. Uh, but he is a guy that they're they're, they're looking at. Um, and, you know, now USC is kind of in the same boat. You know, are they really going to push hard for him? Is he, you know, basically taking the place of Ty Anthony Smith in terms of, you know, that that spot as a will linebacker, uh, sort of cleanup man, um, you know, the athleticism, not not super big, uh, but but super quick and athletic. Uh, like I said, I, I could kind of see this being a plan, plan B or plan C for him. The final 
linebacker offer that we have is our only unranked prospect out of Utah. That's linebacker Ephraim Asiata. And if that last name kind of sounds familiar because he has some uh, pretty good bloodlines. His father, Matt Asiata, was a former NFL running back, played five seasons in the NFL, most famously with the Minnesota Vikings. He famously was the running back that kind of stepped up when Adrian Peterson was, I believe, injured or suspended. I don't remember which uh, thing that kept him out, but he was the one that kind of stepped up. He is a listed at six foot one, 220 pounds, depending on which thing you're looking at, because he's also been listed at six foot three out of Hunter, out of Salt Lake City, Utah, Hunter High School. Again, unranked, holds five offers, Utah, Brigham Young, Tennessee, USC, and Wisconsin. The first thing that jumps out to me, also playing kind of an edge, but he's also, just like Wyatt Simmons, very violent. Just dawned on me, Matt Asiato is actually a Kennedy Polamalu guy when he was with the Vikings. I think Kennedy was up there coaching the Vikings at that point. So uh, probably knows Matt pretty well and, and maybe even know his son. Uh, but, um, yeah, Ephraim is definitely an edge guy. But judging or, I guess, going by which listing he has, whether, if he's 6'3", then you say, okay, potentially he could be an edge guy. <laughs> But if he's 6'1", no, he's not an edge guy. You can't put him on the line of scrimmage. You've got to bring him back. So, yeah, there's a lot that kind of goes into that. That's why you want to see players in person. And uh, I'll have to reach out to Blair. I don't know if Blair's seen him in person um, to say, you know, he, he he is this or he is that. I think we, we have him listed at six foot one in the database, which tells me Blair has reached out to somebody and they've given him that information. But he does have a specific six foot two listing which he got, I think, right when he got into the database. So I don't know if we've seen him recently, and it was like, eh, we got, eh, he's not quite six two, and we knocked it down or what have you. But six foot three is coming from him on his huddle profile, so he's probably not six three. So again, I would put him with all of these probably in the same category as a guy that's going to move back uh, at the college level, play off the line of scrimmage, and have to be a Will or Mike linebacker. Um, I think a few of these guys are Will. And they are, you know, trying to fill that spot where Ty Anthony Smith was silently committed to USC for part of the spring. And USC felt pretty good about getting his scholarship offer. So this is a pivot. This is a very overt pivot by USC to get another scholarship linebacker out the high school level for this class. We haven't seen this with the offensive line yet. And that's why I say, you know, when I heard going into the summer, three or four, uh, I didn't know if that was like, hey, we just want to get three, and and if there's somebody else out there, we'll go get them. Uh, but that was kind of the numbers that they were looking for, and, and clearly they didn't want to take, even if they could, more than that. Uh, with the linebacker position here, they they are going to take another linebacker. They clearly want another linebacker, and uh, right now they're probably just kind of trying to sort through this group and see who has the most interest. Are there any connections? Is there something interesting there? Hey, it turns out that, you know, Wyatt Sims actually has an uncle who lives here or or something that, you know, there's sort of an angle that you can kind of play uh, to get some traction in those recruitments. Um, sure, certainly, I think, I mean, out of that group, Asiata probably has the most familiarity with USC. He is, you know, more a Western type of recruit. Um, culturally, we talked about this a bit, you know, the difference between having that draft mentality and a recruiting mentality is just – when you're recruiting and you're outside of that region, things change, you know, just in terms of how much people are talking about your football program and other football programs. 
uh, it's much different. And so I would think Asiata probably has a little more awareness. Uh, we have yet to speak with him uh, about the scholarship offer, but probably has a little more awareness for USC traditionally, maybe even the Polynesian tradition at USC. And he's the one guy like out of the group where you go, okay, that's more of a USC type of offer as opposed to certainly with Wyatt Simmons and, and, my, and Michael Boganowski, you think, okay, again, Brian Odom, tell me that you recruited at Oklahoma without telling me you recruited at Oklahoma. Those are Oklahoma type of offers. Those are kids that culturally probably don't know jack squat about USC. Um, again, unless there is some kind of unique angle there through family or, oh, yeah, somebody played there or went to USC. It's like, oh, I would have never known that at face value. Uh, these are guys that you really got to work to sort of convince, to, to sort of break that ice and say, hey, give USC a chance. I know that's thinking outside the box. That's not necessarily thinking out of the box for Ephraim Asiata. Gerard, before we go to our first break of the show, we're doing the 2024 Clash Draft, com. Which one of these guys are you taking? Uh, that's, you um, only have one. You can only have one. That's, that's tough because we're, we're in the later rounds now. <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're in the later rounds. No disrespect to these young men, but – we're in the later rounds now, and it really is going to depend. We missed on somebody, right? So we missed on Kingston, Valiamuasa. We missed on Ty Anthony Smith. Even though we were drafting, somehow we, we drafted somebody else. There was some Missed on Dylan position. Williams. Dylan Williams, exactly. So um, out of this group, I mean, wow, geez, it's a tough one. It's a tough one. I have not seen enough of Asiata at this point. You know, I've seen just – individual clips uh, from individual games of him. I mean, Wyatt Simmons is the guy with the best film by far, in my opinion. I mean, and he's the guy that's playing linebacker now. I think just from a speed, length, height standpoint, he jumps off uh, a bit more. You know, I like that Boganowski plays multiple positions and what have you, uh, but it is Kansas, and he doesn't look super fast. I mean, I'd love to put him on a clock, but you know what? USC isn't going to get any of these guys on the clock. That's the cold, hard reality of it these days. These kids don't go to a lot of these camps. Unless you're able to drum up some time that they ran as a sophomore or something, you're probably not going to get very good, reliable times on these kids. But I, I'd probably have to say Wyatt Simmons. All right. And with that, let's go and take our break for this show. When we come back, we're going to talk a little USC fall camp a little Big Ten expansion, and then a couple listener questions. So we'll be right back after this break. Picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? 
And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie. And we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. All right, Gerard, we're back. How was your break? My break was good. I got some cold water. It's not too hot in the garage today. It was uh, probably only 90, 91 out here, and the humidity has gone down a bit in the IE this week, So, uh, or at least today. So, yeah, doing good. Garage Martinez thriving in his environment. We talked last week about some fall camp stuff because fall camp was right around the corner when our last episode uh, aired. And fall camp is officially here now that we're on this episode. So there are some things to talk about when it comes to real USC football, real tangible stuff we're seeing on the practice field. Yeah, this is the good stuff. I mean, this is, you know, football season is upon us. And it's not a one of those, God, I hope USC can win eight games. They should win 10, but I just hope they can at least win eight games. It is, can they make a college football playoff run? Will they win the conference? They should win the conference, but will they win the conference? They got to go up to Oregon and play. They've got some difficult games on this schedule. And so people are excited again about USC football. They're excited about the potential of where the program could be at the end of the year based partly on what they did last year, but also I think just the credibility that Lincoln Riley and his staff brings to the football program. So fall camp is upon us. And, you know, obviously it started out a bit odd because it was like two practices and then they were off for like two days. They didn't have the July barbecue recruiting weekend, which I thought they might have something during the day, even though they've got some practices, but it sounds like they really didn't do anything. They did have some guys come up, for unofficial visits. Uh, we talked about Mikhail, uh, Noah McHale coming uh, down for an unofficial visit, the uh, four-star, five-star linebacker, uh, depending on composite USC uh, sports, the uh, 24-7 sports rankings, excuse me. Um, you know, Always he gets came, me. He came down. Well, uh, yeah, I, I, the composite, <laughs> it's the 24-7 sports composite rankings, and then the 24-7 sports, and I call them centric rankings. I don't know if that's the right specific use of of the word um but trying to differentiate and i tend to go with the 24 7 sports rankings because it doesn't include espn because i don't know what espn sees sometimes espn i think they just kind of go off a whim 
uh, when it comes to West Coast players. So nevertheless, um, he I believe he I believe uh, Noah McHale is a five star composite and a four star 24 seven sports. Uh, at one time he was he might be four star on both because, again, composite changes with other services or should say other publications changing their rankings. And I don't really keep up with other publications. So nevertheless, uh, he made it down, but there was no big, you know, like you said, Dakota Fields. He went up to Oregon uh, for their big Friday night, Saturday night, whatever the hell it is, Friday night, Saturday night live. Uh, recruiting Saturday game. night live, baby. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure Chevy Chase was there, Dan Aykroyd, the whole gang. Um, and then there's others, you know, like Texas A&M who have their pool party, which is not even on campus. It's in an apartment complex off of campus. Tell me that that is on the level. Um, so there's all these little weekends that people have, you know, at the last uh, weekend. And USC kind of didn't do that. What, what kind of, uh, you know, the, the schedule is was a bit odd. It's, it's earlier this year. Was there much explanation as to, you know, why they decided to get uh, the, the, the fall camp get you know, going earlier in the year than they had in previous years, where it's I have, like August fourth or August fifth start. Well, their their actual like week early starting, or do you mean the time? I mean the dates. Oh, the dates. Yeah, well, because they're playing the week zero matchup. So Lincoln has talked about how they are allowed to start earlier than any other team, just because they get to play a week earlier, or they're going to play a week earlier for that week zero game. So if you got a week zero game, you're allowed to start early. So that's kind of why they're uh they're getting going uh, about a week earlier than than most schools and then if, if as far as the early morningness of it all i woke up at uh, four o'clock for a 6 a.m practice today a lot of their kids have uh are in class right now so it just works out for them to practice super early in the morning and get those kids off to class for the rest of the day okay question question and answer answered so that's yeah. what we like to do on this podcast that's a that's a rapid fire right there um, and of course you've been down there for those early 6am practices, which you will not find me at because I live in the Inland empire and it would take me three and a half hours to get down there to LA at that time during the weekday. Um, newcomers, we want to know about newcomers on the uh, composite recruiting podcast. We don't care about Caleb Williams. We know about Caleb Williams. We know about all those guys that made impacts last year. The fans of this podcast, they love to know about the transition of these four-star, five-star guys and what kind of impact they're actually going to make their first year in college. When the rubber meets the road and they're actually in camp, what kind of production can we expect from them? Now, we see very little of practice. That's another reason why you're never going to catch me down there driving three hours so I can see five minutes of warm-ups and then get a 20-minute scrum. Um, what are we looking at in terms of – you know, early impressions, you know, things that you're seeing from some of these guys um, just moving around a little bit in warmups and, you know, the kind of like five minutes we get to see of Indo. Yeah, I'll start off with someone that stood out to me today, and that's Mr. Jacoby Lane, the four-star wide receiver out of Arizona. And maybe a guy that I wouldn't say gets lost in the shuffle because I think a lot of people are really excited about him and he's sort of turning into a guy – where a lot of people are talking about look out for Jacoby Lane because obviously there's so much talent in that wide receiver room. And then Deuce Robinson at six foot six, you know, kind of being moved to wide receiver kind of takes a little bit of the shine off the, you know, big body lane. But uh, Jacoby Lane had a really nice practice. I, I couldn't take my eyes off him when I was watching kind of the the passing drills. And a couple of the uh, defenders, Kalen Bullock and Mason Cobb said Jacoby Lane made the best catch of practice. Didn't really go into detail what that uh, catch 
entailed, but they said he made an amazing catch. And we expect to hear a lot about Jacoby Lane making amazing catches at practice because that's just what he does. You know, Pogo six legs. Is this going to be the year of the Jacoby, Chris? I I don't know if it's going to be the year of Jacoby because I just I just don't know what his role is going to be. As as I mentioned, it's a very stacked wide receiver room with a lot of veterans. But, but he's different. You but said he's different. He's he is different. different. He is different. He's six foot four. Him and Deuce Robinson give that room an instant uh, juice of a uh, size. And you know, now, he looks, no, wait. It, now I gotta, okay. I gotta interject. See, okay. I'm playing the, the, the part of host, and you, see, yeah, yeah, I interject okay. a lot more. But um, now this is kind of the important thing. We talk about Jacoby Lane, okay, six four, and Deuce Robinson is six five, six six. Kind of explain to everyone listening, like the difference between those two players, because they're they're both bigger. And you and you said, you know, Deuce kind of takes the shine off of that just because he's another big body there, which you don't really have in the receiver room for USC. I mean, maybe Brendan Rice is, is kind of there, but there's there's not really a big body. I mean, Tyron, you know, Hudson is, is the only other guy that's in that 6'2 range. But with Deuce and Jacoby, those are two big guys, but big in different different ways. Yeah, I, I would say Deuce is more – obviously, you know, he was a high-level baseball guy. I would say Deuce is more of the, like, the like athlete. If you watch his tape, you know, he's a guy breaking breaking down the field very quick for his size. You know, I know he turned a lot of heads uh, on social media over the, over the summer for kind of, you know, posting some, like, 21 miles per hour runs. You know, he's got some game-changing speed able to go down the field – and be a vertical threat at, you know, six foot six and borderline kind of even closer to six foot seven than six foot six. You know, when he comes out, you notice him uh, out there in that those receiver lines. And then Lane, I wouldn't necessarily consider him a like true speed down the field vertical threat guy. But you put him in the red zone and man, he is just a matchup nightmare. We've seen all the highlights of him just like mossing these cornerbacks in the end zone. He is just, as I mentioned, pogo stick for legs. You know, his vertical might be the best on the team. I'd be interested to see what he actually stacks up with the rest of the guys. You know, Deuce might be taller than him, more athletic than him, but I would kind of bet that Jacoby Lane has the, the, the highest catch radius of any guy on that team and pretty good hands to boot uh, as well as that, as we've seen him make some ridiculous one handed catches, but Deuce, I think is the more, kind of physical guy, the big, better athlete. But as we mentioned, when I've talked about Jacoby Lane, you know, he's a guy who showcased that he's not afraid to put his head down and uh, bust some skulls or whether that's, you know, as a receiver trying to pick up extra yards or as a blocker uh, in that regard. Chris, they have Jacoby Lane officially listed at six foot five, 180 pounds. So that's a lean six foot five. You think he's six foot five? I mean, it's a very long six four. It's not like you know how you look at a guy and they're like six foot four, and you're like, okay, I could feel like it's maybe six foot three and a half. You know, you kind of feel like you're rounding up. Jacoby is like a long six foot four, so I would not, or six foot five. I would not look. I, I'm willing to bet. I know USC's numbers are very wonky, and uh, looking at you. Anthony Lucas at 295 pounds. The numbers are never correct. <laughs> so, but, but, it, but Jacoby Deuce Lane, Robinson, 6'6", 225. 225 for Deuce Robinson. I, I mean, he was listed at 250 coming out of high school. He, is he I mean, he, he looks, he looks slimmer than I expected him to look. 
because he does. I don't know if it's like the baseball who's getting in shape for baseball. I I don't know, but he does. Is he going to move to defensive line? (laughs) He is not going to move to defensive line. Can he play left tackle? No, I do not think he's going to the trenches. But yeah, he uh, Deuce Robinson does look uh, does look around the two twenty five, two thirty range. You missed that with the 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 shedding of weight and moving to defensive line. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> so okay, so I mean, you know, th- those are you know, obviously Jacoby Lane. Um, I, I think even Connor had mentioned that. Uh, there's been some mention of, of him, you know, kind of standing out, which is interesting. Number eighty nine, folks. So that is going to be. He's got that rookie NFL number. He's got- <laughs> yeah, he's got that old school wide receiver number. Number eighty nine. I'm trying to think off the top of my head. The last guy that I can remember that wore number 89 at USC. I mean, he's probably a tight end. I, I don't know. Yep. It's a very tight end number as well. Yeah. 89. I mean, 81, 82, you know, even an 85 and 80, but yeah, 89 is, uh, that's up there, man. That's up there. So, um, another player that's a newcomer, not necessarily a freshman, but bear Alexander, we did not see him, at the first practice, and uh, of course, you know that's a little bit of. Well, uh, he was there, but he was not not practice. Full go. Yeah, uh, well, full yeah, go. was not was not going full go. Uh, it sounds like he's he's now back in the mix and and uh, participating fully. I wouldn't say fully. It kind of looks like they're still uh, bringing him along slowly. But he was in shells. They were in shells today. He did have his helmet. He did have his little uh, pad thing on his helmet. He did have. Shells. So I would say that he is definitely further along than he was on Friday when we first saw him. Is he doing like team run stuff? That I don't know. It just looks like he was a little bit limited just from the from the the limited amount of time we did get to see. I did not see him in the pursuit drill, the team pursuit drill, which kind of they kind of hold guys out that are injured in that. And I did not see him in there. So I kind of feel like maybe he's still coming along. But to see him out there. And pads is a good sign, though. Yeah. I mean, it's just one of those things that, you know, we saw with uh, obviously Ishmael Shopsher and some of the other transfers yeah. that have come in. You know, they come in injured. So yeah, I think he's better than Shopsher was uh, well, getting double, double, double leg surgery. Yeah, I don't even know we saw Sopcher uh, at all <laughs> until like two weeks into like spring ball or something. It was like, oh, he is here. Okay, cool. But he's not playing. Okay, cool. And then. You know, obviously that uh, never uh, amounted to anything. Meticulated but, um, into anything, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's one of those things, and I'm sure people are out there like, all right, because there was some criticisms about Barry Alexander and his uh, work ethic uh, and, and how much he was practicing and involved in practices at Georgia. So that's going to be something that everybody wants to kind of keep an eye on and seeing how involved he is. Obviously, with the defensive line and that front seven, that's a new front seven. And, I mean, USC was able to figure it out offensively, and you would think – that is much harder to do uh, with a system and just, you know, the complicated, uh, the, the terminology, the, the communication that has to go into playing offense. And defense, it's not as complicated. And there's not as much communication or terminology that you have to use. But nevertheless, you do want to see some chemistry. You do want to see some things worked out. You know, we saw Keon Bars. He's a real deal. He's gone out there and he's practiced. He's been uh, yeah. very consistent. You know, at that def- defensive tackle spot, we're going to see what happens with Anthony Lucas, uh, you know, with some mention that he's been playing more on the outside, which, you know, we kind of were thinking ah, maybe he's a guy that, you know, like that listing 295 or whatever the heck it was. He ends up playing a little bit of three technique. It looks like he's really sold on not even playing just five, 
but actual rush in. I mean, I will say it, the two practices that we've seen, he has been solely with the rush end. So, I mean, maybe they'll move him back at the end of the, the camp, but it looks right now he's like fully in the rush end room. So they've got nine rush ends on the uh, roster yeah, they, right now. Well, they actually moved Solomon Bird to defensive line. So that's one less. Okay. Okay. One less. And one I could see that with, with Solomon Bird. Solomon is not super long, um, yeah. but he does have good natural, natural pass rush moves. Um, has he gained any weight? Is he is he is he a little little got a little more to him, or is he just? I, I don't think he's got more to him, but it, it it does look like his pads are very boxy, so it makes him look like he's a little bit bigger. But I don't think he's actually bigger. <laughs> so I know that doesn't help you, but that's like my observation. Yeah, no, I mean that's a guy that you'd like to see probably playing closer like two seventy than the two fifty he was, you know. So. You know, that's one of those things if he's moving and he's playing more. Now, you say defensive line. Is that, like, with uh, Jack Sullivan and, like, the five techniques? Or, yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of the five technique. Yeah, yeah, because, kind of. I mean, they have put Sully a little bit at the three technique. And he did play in the spring game inside a bit, which I was surprised. But I was he'll, also surprised. He'll play anywhere. He'll play anywhere, and I think that's going to be huge for them. because He's one of, he's one of the few guys that, that actually – I mean, is bigger than he was listed. I mean, yeah. he, you know, like all these other guys are like, okay, doesn't look accurate because it looks like he's slimmer or guys come in and he's lost weight. It seems to be a bit of a theme with the Alex Branch defensive line. But with Sully, I mean, he's a guy that like, he just looks bigger than he's listed. It's like a tackle. Yeah. He's, and, and he's got long arms. He's, he's a good looking dude. Um, productive at Purdue, nothing amazing. But again, he was playing more of an edge guy, and I think he has put on weight. And uh, uh, it'll be it'll, it'll be cool to kind of see it, how how much he actually plays at what position for USC. It does seem like USC has an abundance of edge rushers at this point. I kind of made the joke like you know they've got nine rush ins. I, I don't know how many rush ins they've got, but I mean with Jamil Muhammad coming in, um, they've moved Corey Foreman I guess back over to I. He was always a five. Well, he was a five technique originally. And then I thought they moved him over to rushing a little bit what last season, but yeah. it's like you know, yeah. Where, where where is he now? Is he still over at the at the five technique or is he? Yeah, he's with, he's with the five techniques. He's working that defensive end, and the 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 rushing room is actually maybe a little bit smaller than we anticipated because David PB is hurt. Lincoln Riley said he was going to be hurt for I, I can't remember if he said the first half of fall camp or all of fall camp, but yeah, he's not in that room. Romello Height got nicked up, so he wasn't at practice today. It's just been kind of the main four of Anthony Lucas, Jamil Muhammad, Braylon Shelby, and Sam Green. That's kind of been your core rush-end room. And then Height, when obviously he he does come back from being nicked up. But, yeah, because I thought maybe Elijah Hughes was going to be a rush-end, just looking at his body. But he looks more D-line than I saw him uh, kind of in the early summer. So it looks like he's put on a little bit of weight. He's starting out with the, the the defensive lineman, so that's one less rush in that they have in that room. Yeah, interesting uh, kind of note there um, with uh, you know Romello Height. I know he's not a newcomer, but you know certainly that's another one of those guys injury problems. And you know you're just like, yeah, okay, dude. <laughs> you know at some point are you are you going to be able to be in there consistently, or is it just going to be one of those things where? You know, you can't really be dependable, and it just seems like, you know, it's, that's that's tough in the front seven. Not to know who your guys are going to be, what kind of depth you're going to have. Um, it's not like uh, Dijon Lafitte was uh, also a sidelined as a newcomer in the initial part of camp. 
Uh, Lafitte? Yeah. No, I think he was he was good. Oh, yeah. I, I, I thought I read somewhere on the board somebody was saying he was under concussion protocol, but maybe I was wrong about that. Um, any other uh, uh, newcomers that uh, jumped out at you? Tackett Curtis is not necessarily a newcomer, but that's a guy that's going to potentially change how USC plays this summer – excuse me, this uh, this fall – based on whether he can be Mike linebacker or not, you know, like, I mean, can they kick out Eric Gentry, you know, is Mason Cobb going to be able to play Will, or is he going to have to play Mike? Are, are they just going to use uh, Tackett Curtis for depth? I mean, you saw him during the spring, you know, um, how much more are they going to be able to get out of him? Do you think they're going to be able to put that, that faith in him to be a guy that can actually at some point, maybe let's say fourth, fifth game, be a starter. Yeah, I mean, we talked to Brian Odom today, and, you know, based on everything that he's saying, you know, Tacky Curtis, it's not a if he plays this season, it's like a when, and I think they're just waiting for it to, you know, finally click. Obviously, he's been doing a lot of good things in practice. You know, he's you know learning the playbook still. He's still making, you know, freshman mistakes, which is like any freshman that comes on, on a college campus their, their first year. And, you know, you're kind of you're thrown into the fire a little bit as early enrollee. And this is the part of fall camp or in a couple of weeks is kind of where you see kind of the slowing down for for a lot of those freshmen. I mean, just look at Kalen Bullock, his uh, his early enrollee season. You know, he got absolutely torched multiple times in that spring game. But by the time uh, fall camp was around, he was making play after play after play after play. And it was very clear that, hey, this guy is going to be pushing possibly for a starting job. I'm not saying Tackett Curtis is going to have that kind of fall camp just because, you know, there are some older vets ahead of him and Mason Cobb and Eric Gentry, two guys we feel really, really good about being the starters, assuming everyone's healthy. But I think we're going to see a little bit of a run here with Tackett Curtis starting to assert himself in that second unit, you know, making plays. And Brian Odom was talking about how with Tackett, he doesn't over – complicate things it's very simple for him it's uh don't worry about the block worry about the ball you know he's always above getting the ball the, whatever whatever is in front of him he's going to get the ball carrier that's kind of the thing and that is obviously what it boils down to with uh football and defense get the ball get the ball carrier and that's kind of what he is able to simplify it all and that's you know a good thing to see from a freshman and when asked about Tackett Curtis and if he's making mistakes of hesitation or mistakes of aggression, Brian Odom was like super quick. He did not hesitate. He was like, yeah, he's making mistakes of aggression, which is obviously the kind of mistakes you would want a, a player to make, especially a linebacker. You know, you can kind of fix those things, but you kind of want to keep that aggression. So you're hearing good things about Tack Curtis. He just said he has to just keep developing. You know, you can't kind of stay stagnant where he was, what he was, the good things he was doing. In the spring, you know, those aren't going to be good enough in the fall. So he has to just keep progressing, keep developing, keep staying in his playbook, get more comfortable in the defense. Because once, you know, things start to slow down for him, that's when you start seeing plays being made. You start seeing playing time being earned. And I guess the final uh, newcomer to ask about, or at least comes to the top of my mind, is Traquan Figgins him? I obviously, honestly, haven't really. I'm gonna say no because obviously I have and honestly, honestly and honestly, I'm gonna say no just because I haven't really noticed him that much. For one, the court, the DBs are way on the other side, 
So we don't get as up close and personal as, as we get to see them uh, when they're on Howard Jones. So they're away on the other side. And, you know, he kind of just looks like another cornerback to me. So he's out there, but, you know, Christian Roland Wallace, Damani Jackson, Sierra Wright, Jacoby Covington, those are kind of still the lead guys. So I'm not saying, you know, we won't see Traquan Fagans this season. I'm just saying, as of right now, he hasn't really kind of stood out to me. Yeah, I mean, it's very, very early, obviously. Right. But but it is good to kind of note the guys that, uh, for whatever reason, in the limited amount of view that we have, sort of pop out there. And, um, again, it could be the year that Jacoby, because Jacoby Covington is uh, on the other side of the football and had a very good spring ball, and I've heard good things about him uh, initially over the summer and coming into fall camp. And so, you know, everybody's looking forward to seeing Damani – I know, you know, he's one of those guys that has that following. The the pair style is very simple. Uh, I've learned over the years. It's the kids that have the storylines and subplots during the recruiting process that there's some investment there. And when you finally sign them, then it's like, okay, now produce. Get the production. Okay, we put all this time and effort emotionally into your recruitment from your sophomore year going forward. And now you're supposed to be a guy and they really want to know where that investment is going. That's why people always ask about Corey Foreman. That's why people always ask about Rajon Davis. These are guys that were in that class that it was a big deal for USC to get Corey Foreman away from Oregon because that was three straight top California players that Oregon got away from USC. And Corey Foreman was the one that USC finally went out for. So those type of players that are those local four-star, five-star guys are the ones that the peristyle always want to hear from. They want to hear from Solomon Tuli Alapupu. They want to know, hey, that's the kid that went to modern day that was a four-star, five-star linebacker. We loved him. We were so excited to see him sign with USC. Now we're excited to see him play. When is he going to play? Two more things I want to throw at you before we kind of move on. I mean, Braylon Shelby, my God, just maybe one of the best-looking freshmen I have ever seen. Let's go. He is freaking massive. He looks like an NFL guy. Kind of just you look at him and you're like, there's no way this guy is a is a true freshman. His Say arms this. are massive. He makes it's it, it seems weird to say, but he looks he makes kind of like Anthony Lucas kind of look a little bit small. You look at Anthony Lucas next to Brandon Shelby and you're like, okay, Anthony Lucas is definitely not 295. But Braylon Shelby is just looks like a dude and obviously he has to play like a dude but he is borderline six foot six he looks like he his arms themselves looks like they're 235 and i know the the parasol started making fun of me being obsessed with his arms but his (laughs) arms are massive gerard like i i can't even like i can't even like put it into words how like yoked he is so braylon shelby Right off the bat, like that guy, I mean, Lincoln Riley joke, like you, you wish they all look like that. I mean, yeah, I, I I I get it. And then kind of the other point is like the freshman offensive linemen, the four newcomers, you know, Ray, Tobias Raymond, Micah Benuelos, uh, Amos Talele, and Alani Noah, they all look really good just in terms of physically. Like they're big, they're thick. You know, Tobias Raymond's put on a lot of weight. Lonnie Noah is just looks like the most 
ready of them. Like if you're just going to throw a guy out there, I would pick Alani Noah to be out there. They're especially the, the Polynesian guys. They're they're thick and sturdy, and it looks like they're going to give them every opportunity to kind of move up on that uh, that depth chart. That third line was basically all the freshmen. You had uh, Mike at center. Um, Amos at right guard, Alani at left guard, and a little bit of a twist. Tobias Raymond was playing on the left side. They had Cooper Lovelace playing that right tackle spot. So, yeah, I, I would say I was very impressed physically just looking at the uh, the four new offensive linemen, the four freshman offensive linemen. Yeah, Tobias Raymond is the – if you can make that work, then you really have a lot of – faith in the coaching staff developing and faith in those three-star sort of off-the-radar scholarship offers because there's a lot of those type of kids, the Chad Wheelers of the world, that, again, 250 pounds coming out of high school. It's not the 315-pound 6'6 off to tackle from Tampa, Florida or Brunswick, Georgia. It's the local kids that play multiple sports, and they go to the beach, and they don't want to embrace their Bubba. But, you know, get them in the proper nutrition program and uh, get them in the weight room and encourage them. And they see, you know, that they can do things athletically and still put on the weight. You know, there's a lot of hope there. And that's kind of where USC has to be in certain situations. You know, yeah, they want to get Brandon Baker. Yeah, they want to get Manasseh Tete. Yeah, you, you want to get those top players. Don't get me wrong, okay? But you're going to have to fill your board also with guys like, Tobias Raymond, and you're going to have to find from class to class those guys that are underrated, and they may end up being your Jacob Rogers, your Chad Wheelers. They may end up being better than some of the other guys that you recruited that were of the four-star and five-star level guys. So that is more of a Pac-12 West Coast problem, if you want to call it a problem, but it's good to hear that a guy like that, you know, can't put the weight on quickly and isn't kind of overwhelmed by his body physically because he's just going to get better. Like he's just going to get better from the standpoint of coordination. You know, once he kind of gets used to all this new body weight that he's got and all this new muscle and strength and he kind of clicks on how to use it. So he's a, he's a young pup, but it's good to see that he's out there and he's playing and he's involved and he's contributing. You know, it just becomes, you know, a point when he has to contribute against some of the first team guys. And it's because, you know, they're looking at him to be a potential starter. Um, and that goes for the rest of the offensive line. You know, there there are big guys out there. You know, they may not be four-star, five-star guys, but, um, you know, I, I like that class that they got last year. Didn't didn't have the big marquee type of guy. Um, you never know. Maybe Tobias Ray, Raymond ends up being that guy. That would be fantastic. But um, with this class kind of going forward, uh, 2024, you're still kind of in that same boat, right? You know, especially with Atite gone because he was that guy that was potentially – that franchise guy, you know, he had the ranking and still a lot of rawness there. I mean, we talked about it and this is, you know, I know we're going to get probably a question from some duck fan who's posing as a USC fan who slides in and says, but you guys are always so critical of the guys that don't go to USC afterwards. It's sour grapes. And you always talk about NIL. Listen, we've mentioned probably like three or four players in the entire class that USC has recruited when we've talked about NIL being a driving factor. I think we, like literally out of 200 guys, I think there's been like four guys that we've mentioned, hey, this is going to be a big factor and it might be an issue for USC recruiting him. The same thing goes, you know, when we look at players and we talk about them in hindsight, we talked about uh, Manasseh Atite after the Under Armour camp 
And I mean, he is raw. Like he got beat straight up and his name escapes me. The 2026 defensive lineman from Louisiana that you interviewed. What was his name? I, I, I'm blanking on his name. He got a scholarship off from USC. He's a uh, freaking beast. Jacorian? Jacorian? I don't know. That name doesn't really come. Hold on. I'm going to find him. I'm yeah, find just him. look on the 2026. Just look at the offer list. It'll, it'll come right up. Um, but that that kid, and listen, that kid is, is you know, in terms of, like, age and whatever, it maybe maybe there's 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 less of a gap there, but he kind of beasted Manasseh Tete. Uh, Jakeem Stewart. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Jakeem. Um, and, and he was like, okay, all right, you know, Tete's got the long arms and he's high cut. And you see, you know, from the basketball background, but there's definitely a lot of football ahead of him. He's got to learn a lot. And again, disposition wise, you just don't know if he's, um, you know, ready to be that guy. And, and I'm not saying he's not going to be, but there was definitely a lot to be there. It, it's not quite like, you know, landing a Brandon Baker or, or some of these other guys that are, you know, have been playing football for the last four years and are kind of like, okay, what you see is what you get sort of thing. So USC still kind of looking for that guy at left tackle, right? You know, Elijah Page, a great step in the right direction. And I think Elijah Page is going to be a good player, but you know, that franchise type of Austin Jackson level player, Matt Khalil, Tyron Smith, you know, that type of guy, we're still kind of uh, waiting to see if USC is able to close on that type of guy. Just want to throw the number 89 at you back again as we come full circle. The last, uh, can I throw out some wares of the number 89 jersey for you? Wearers of the 89 jersey. Um, God, I know I'm going to I'm gonna be like kicking myself because I should Well, I, I have them. I'm going to give them to you. I know, I know, but I know okay. you're going to give me the names. I'm going to go, yeah, he wasn't. I, I should have known that. I feel like Dale Thompson was 89. Now, that's really going back. That's going back to the Pete Carroll era. But I think he was number 89, tight end um, from down in, like, Calexico or something. They got him down there from, like, San Diego to, like, Central Valley, San Diego. Um, but go ahead. You do you, Chris. Name the 89s of, of USC Well, just two that I have here. Uh, Christian Rector, 49. Was he, was he 89? I just talked about Christian Rector. I just used him as an example of a deep There line. you go. That USC kind of has to recruit. He was six four, or he was like six five, two hundred six, two hundred forty something pounds coming out of Loyola High School, and a guy that was like hey, he's a three star, whatever. But he was a good player for USC. He was a good player for some pretty mediocre teams. Um, I think one of those teams was was halfway decent for Clay Helton, but um, but I, that's the that's like almost the prototype California defensive lineman. He's not going to be three hundred pounds. He's not going to be Ellis McCarthy. We talked about this in the past. Five star out of Monrovia High School ended up going to UCLA. That guy comes every five, six years on the West Coast. Like, I mean, even Jericho Johnson and Aiden Breland are not Ellis McCarthy as far as looks. Ellis McCarthy was 6'6, 6'5, 315 pounds, and just he he could run sideline to sideline. Like he was violent. He looked like you plucked him right out of like some Baton Rouge backwater you know, lab high school sort of like, Oh, this looked like a Southern defensive lineman. And uh, there's just not a lot of those guys on the West coast. And uh, there's plenty, plenty more Christian rectors. And those are the kind of guys you're going to have to win football games with. And the last one, one of the more legendary players to wear the number 89 Jersey, which the old heads will remember that is a uh, tight end, Charles young who led the Trojans in 
catches during their 1972 championship run. So I know a lot of uh, older fans that listen to the show are like, yeah, Charles Young. So maybe you're not familiar with that name, you but skip, that's another. You skip right over the whole Picara era. No, no Dale Thompson. I, I only had two. I, I, it's very hard to find the uh, <laughs> all-time roster number. I'm, I'm sorry. Maybe by the end of the show I can find it. But I just wanted to give you a couple 89s. A couple 89s. But, Gerard, are you ready to move on to our last talking point for a few listener questions? Dale Thompson, number 89. There you okay. go. You, now you I am. Now I'm okay. ready to move okay. on. Uh, the last thing would be uh, expansion. Expansion of the Big Ten. Expansion of the Big 12. And potentially the... Maybe not, but yeah, potentially the death of the Pac-12. Things have uh, heated up over the last, oh, I don't know, 24 hours. And even while we, before we started this podcast, things were moving frantically with rumors and sources. And the Big Ten are are meeting and Arizona and Arizona State are meeting. And the four corner schools, what are they going to do? So a lot is going on. Colorado is leaving for the Big 12. A lot is going on for the Pac-9 right now, and it seems like the carousel is about to get topsy-turvy, and then who knows what it looks like when the uh, the dust has settled. It is a lot of speculation and a lot of conjecture right now is what you're getting from people. And there are certainly those that are rooting for certain outcomes, and I think it's interesting to look at it, you know, from 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 two perspectives. One, of course, the football perspective, the investment, the you know, what are we as a university prioritizing sort of perspective, and then also obviously the recruiting impact that all this could potentially have with certain schools in certain conferences and certain schools not in certain conferences. So what we're hearing a lot right now is the Big Ten exploring the possibility of bringing in Cal, Stanford, Oregon, and Washington. So, you know, some of this is also probably a little bit of writing on the wall because you've seen multiple schools already make moves to potentially go in the Big 12. uh, And we haven't heard a whole lot about those schools with the Big 12. So, you know, when you hear about Colorado and you hear about the Arizona schools, everybody's like, well, so what's going to happen with, you know, Cal, Stanford, Oregon, and UW? Now, I've said my piece from an investment priority standpoint when it comes to particularly Cal. I think the Big Ten is silly for even contemplating having Cal as a part of the Big Ten. I think with what Cal pulled when UCLA announced that they were leaving – and you had all this nonsense with the UC system and them threatening to sue UCLA and not let UCLA join the Big Ten. I feel like that was pretty much everything that you needed to know about where Cal's priorities lie and the fact that they are just a fifth column in a football conference. Uh, they are going to undermine everything that you do. And I've seen it up close. So I don't know why you would even want to entertain the idea of having Cal in your conference, I understand that academically Cal does well. I understand that they are a rival to Stanford. I mean, maybe there's some kind of weird, you know, Stanford would 
become a part of the conference only if Cal becomes a part of the conference. I don't know why Stanford's a private school. It's not a part of the UC system. I know there's just a Bay Area sort of rivalry there, but I I don't know if I really buy that there's that kind of link with Stanford and Cal. And certainly there's not that kind of link with UCLA and Cal, and they are both a part of the same academic system. And UCLA, trust me, could not get farther away from Cal right now. You know, they were more than happy to cut ties and like move on and let's go get in a real football conference. And that's the thing. That's that's the reason why USC and UCLA go to the Big Ten to get away from these leeches, these lampreys of football programs that are not reinvesting in their own product. And, you know, with with Oregon State and Washington State and schools like that, God bless them, because you know what? I mean, I think they invest as much as they really can. I think they try. And they're just in very small markets, and there's just not a huge alumni base. It just, you know, it's just 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 not enough there to to make something big out of it. And you could argue, I'm sure, you know, economics wise, maybe maybe they could put more, but I think they do a lot, you know, and there's just, you know, is what it is. Your Washington State, um, just like your Kansas State, et cetera. Uh, but when it comes to Cal, not the same excuses. There's no way Cal should be as as an afterthought in college football as they are every single year. With the amount of talent in the Bay Area, again, you're dealing with an administration and people that clearly they do not want football to be a narrative at their universities. Very political agenda driven. And so I just don't know why you would – invite that into a conference where um, clearly, you know, people are on the same page. It seems like even the academic schools like Northwestern are somewhat on the same page of like, this is, this is the, the direction we want to go. So I, I just don't understand why Cal would be a part of that conversation. Stanford more so kind of like a Northwestern and you can obviously debate, you know, does Stanford put enough into football and what have you, but Stanford, I know there's a little something different. They have at least, had some decent football tradition here and there. You saw what Jim Harbaugh was able to do there. Um, I think it takes a Jim Harbaugh. It takes somebody very special to be able to convince, you know, the administration and what have you to, to try to help with uh, fielding, you know, good uh, football teams and, and basketball teams. But they are very good in other sports, you know, a lot of the non-revenue sports. So, I mean, maybe that's a little bit of a tick in the box for Stanford. Um, Oregon, outside of Nike, I don't know what they bring to the table and Nike may not be there forever. You know, when Phil Knight passes on, God bless him. I hope he lives till he's a million years old. I, I don't wish anything upon him, but he's getting older and I don't know if the connection is going to be as strong in the future. And I know he's going to give a bunch of money to Oregon and that's going to help him. But when he's not around to say this goes here and I'm writing this check for this and he's not as involved, then it might not quite be the same. And I just don't know if Oregon is that brand from that standpoint. Um, Washington, yes. I think Washington, you've got a good recruiting area there in Seattle. Uh, I think you've got a tremendous fan base. I think the, the Washington fan base is, is one of the best in the country. And I think if you've ever gone up there to go see a football game, you know that. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a school that takes football seriously. And they spend a ton of football money. They, they are all about athletics up there. So from a cultural standpoint, I think that they kind of they, they mix well and they have a big enough platform that, you know, with the the, the television market and what have you. I, I think that 
makes more sense to me. Oregon just kind of, you know, is Oregon football for that swoosh and sort of, you know, they, they put money into the football program, obviously. But again, it's Nike money. And it's all about sort of the supplemental support that they get from Nike more than anything else. And I, I know that's disrespectful and the Oregon workers are not going to like to hear that. But I, I just don't see what else they bring. I mean, location <laughs> because it's a West Coast pod. I mean, whatever. Go, go. Go, go, go bring UNLV into the mix. I mean, at least you've got Vegas. I don't know. I, I don't see it. So that from that standpoint, um, when it comes to the investment and what they bring in, that's my opinion on that part of it. From a recruiting standpoint, as I said, Washington, Seattle, Northwest, there's, there's some good kids up there. There's some good players up there. It's not a huge pool of talent, but it's a decent pool of talent. And I, I think that, um, you know, that's a little bit of an additive uh, to the grand scheme of things. Stanford, obviously – you know, they've got, uh, you know, the Bay Area and they recruit nationally, internationally because of the academics. It's really more, again, from a university, you know, they bring academics to the table. And I'm sure that placates that side of things for the Big Ten to a certain extent. So that's probably, you know, like recruiting standpoint, it does get some of those programs um, some face time when they're playing in Palo Alto in front of some of those kids, which is helpful. So, you know, with Seattle, with the Bay Area, um, you are able to expand your recruiting pr- footprint to some extent, and you're expanding your exposure in decent uh, television markets. Um, Cal has that as well. But like I said, I think Cal has, I mean, they've shown their true colors, and I just don't know why you would want to, uh, to, 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 to be in business to partner with that. Um, so yeah, that's my spiel. What do you got, Chris? I, I really don't, I mean, I really don't have an opinion on it. I think it's just, I'm just the, I'm just the person eating popcorn, watching the, uh, the PAC 12 burn with all of these, as you call it, conjecture rumors, everyone kind of talking about. Where where they're gonna go? There's talk about Arizona. Is there a, the Arizona schools being gone by the weekend? Uh, Clemson and Florida are about to be poached from the S, uh, ACC to the to the was it Big Ten or SEC? I think it's the Big Ten. No, it's just, just, yeah, they've talked about the Big Ten that you know potentially Clemson, Florida State, and Miami has been mentioned. Miami, I heard a while ago. Um, from a couple of sources come up with the Big Ten, which I thought was interesting. But, yeah, Miami has come up. Florida State, never heard anything about that, never heard anything about Clemson. I think with either of those schools, that was more of an SEC thing. But Miami made sense academically and made sense in terms of the market and made sense in terms of expanding the recruiting footprint for a lot of those uh, Midwest schools because they already recruit in Florida quite a bit. And this would be sort of a consistent mainstay. We get our 15 minutes down there in front of these kids, and obviously it's more than 15 minutes, but it's, you know, it's sort of 15 minutes of fame, you know, going out there and, and playing against Miami and trying to convince them to come up, you know, whether you're Ohio state or Michigan uh, or, or Michigan state, et cetera, they do recruit Florida quite a bit. So, you know, uh, you, the, the the other school that came up, there was some chatter about TCU, you know, and, and trying to get down to Texas and having a Texas representative making it a really true national conference. I mean, if you were to do something like that where you're in Florida with Miami and then you're in Texas with TCU and then obviously you're in California and you stretch it all the way up to Washington, you're looking for television markets. You know, that's where 
that sort of tells me the Big Ten is is headed from a business standpoint. And and people will say, oh my gosh, I mean, how are you going to travel? That's that's more than the NFL. Like, I mean, you're you're stretching out there even from a divisional standpoint. That's a lot of travel going on, and it is. It, I just don't know how much that dictates what the Big Ten really wants to do. You know, right now it seems like they're looking for the schools, which from a television market uh, standpoint, and then also potentially from a recruiting standpoint, really expand your 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 footprint. Um, uh, and, and do it in a way that's 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 really valuable, you know. Like, th- like it makes sense to go down to Miami from those two standpoints. Like, you're going to get a lot of exposure with a lot of really good football players when you go play in Miami, or Miami's just a part of your conference, and they're playing schools, and those kids grew up Miami fans, and maybe you know they 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 never really watched any Big Ten football. Well. Miami becomes a part of the Big Ten. They're going to start watching some Big Ten football. All of a sudden, they're going to see Miami. Even the games that they're not playing at home, they may be playing away. All those schools start to become a little more re- relevant to them, um, as does you know USC or USC if the, uh, USC or UCLA if there's um, you know competition there. And and you know it's like okay, who's going to win? Well, you know the East or what, however they break it up. You know it's like between these two teams. All of a sudden, you know that conversation it it's it's part of um, the the awareness of recruits in these areas. So, yeah, it's it's very interesting. Uh, again, Clemson and Florida State to the Big Ten. I I'm surprised, uh, and I haven't heard anything about that. But kind of surprising that you know that that would be in the conversation, especially if you're talking academics, because that's also been a part of the conversation with with some of these schools and and what uh, the Big Ten is looking for. Um, but you know, you also have to talk about, and this goes back to what I said in the beginning of the podcast kind of alluding to, you know, NIL in the future of college football recruiting and how the conferences themselves decide to dictate what is permissible and what is not. And certainly, you know, right now the NCAA is running scared. They just don't want to get sued. And there's, there's not much going on in terms of enforcement. And that's why you have it as crazy as, as it is. Um, but there are four SEC teams in the recruiting rankings top 10 for the 2024 class now. There's three Big Ten teams, right? You've got uh, Michigan and Ohio State, which are right there, and Penn State, actually three in the top five. And if you throw Notre Dame in there, then there is four in the top 10 recruiting-wise. And then you have USC at number 12, Oregon is number 11. Those are only schools anywhere near the top Um right now uh, in terms of team recruiting rankings. So you do look at this and you do look at the future of NIL and how certain schools are approaching it. And while there's certainly a difference and, you know, there's, there's certainly a different approach in terms of how aggressive these schools are being. I mean, USC is still number 12 nationally with all that said, um, you know, Penn State is still at the top. Michigan is still at the top. And you don't hear about Michigan dropping bags very much. You don't hear about Ohio State dropping bags very much. And, and you hear it from time to time. And, of course, you're always going to hear it with opposing fans. You're going to get rivalries. And you're always – we heard that before NIL. You know, Ohio State's doing this and Ohio State's doing that. Just like you hear that from Oregon fans when it comes to USC. There are more tangible things that have come up here in the recent past where it kind of shows like, okay, 
this school's involved with a kid that they have no business being involved with. And he's taken multiple unofficial visits and he can't even pay his cell phone bill. Like something doesn't add up there. Um, but, you know, with I think the Big Ten, there is a different approach, but they're still being very successful in recruiting. Now, obviously, we've got a lot of time before signing day. Alabama, I don't think, is in the top 10 yet. They'll be there. <laughs> don't worry about that. They'll be there. Uh, there'll be some schools that definitely move up, and it could shake out to, you know, maybe some of these Big Ten uh, schools start to fall down a little bit. But I, I do think about that long term if there is – some type of internal decision within the conferences, you know, like I said, with the, 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 the Ivy league schools of the world and this decision, we're not going to compete in the same way for the same kids. We are just going to make that conscious decision. These are going to be the rules that we go by. And however they're set up, they're just going to be some kids that are not going to play in this conference because their priorities are not, in line with our priorities as universities. Gerard, I have a feeling that we'll be talking about this once again in the near future. And the Pac-9 or the Big 12 or the Big 17 or whatever is going to look very different. Maybe even just a week from now when we reconvene for another episode. So we'll be a, we'll be sure to check in on that. But Here's a question. Here's a question. Let me interject. Yeah, okay, let me okay. ask you. Let me okay. Ask you. I just want to get out of here before midnight. <laughs> you've been eating popcorn uh, and you've been, uh, you know, popping your kernels on the uh, head of Arizona State. Um, what do you think would be the most interesting dynamic Big Ten? Do you think they have to include uh, Oregon, uh, Washington, or, or, or what do you think about Miami being in there? I mean, what's your opinion of just – in terms of the best, the best you can get, what, what's the best look like for you? What, what is Trevino Trek Tech? Ugh, it's English. What does Trevino Tech uh, want in a conference? Well, Trevino Tech would obviously want a part of that Big Ten money. But if we're not being considered, I think the whole Big Ten thing is they love their academics. So I think the best would be a strong academic background. Obviously, Stanford, I think, is up there. Washington is up there as well. Oregon, not so much. I don't really know what Miami's uh, academic Miami's stature. not bad. Miami's, a, uh, Miami's not bad. They're a private school. I don't know rank-wise, but they've always been looked at from a business school standpoint and what have you. Fairly respectful. I, I uh, respect it. They've, they've. You respect it. Hurricane I, respects it. I, I, I guess so. I mean, John Ruiz respects it. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think um, it's it's definitely looked at um, more favorably than than Florida State or Clemson academically, for sure, right. uh, or Oregon for that standpoint. I mean, I think you've got Stanford, you've got Cal. Uh, UW, okay. Um, you know, it's a public school. It's a big school. Um, but again, I think that's more of, you know, you're, you're getting some decent recruiting grounds there. Not the best. Not, it's not Miami, but it's still decent. And you're getting a great fan base. And you're getting a school that puts a lot into football, puts a lot into to, to, to athletics in general, which I think is a, I think this is a big deal. I mean, I just, I think that's, that's why the Pac-12 is now the Pac, you know, nine or whatever the hell it's going to be uh, because you had a lot of people really disinterested 
you had presidents who were incompetent and they hired a guy that was a grifter and, uh, you know, made uh, million dollar deals uh, for himself to have an office uh, in San Francisco and just didn't do a whole lot of other stuff. And it just kind of fell in on itself. And so it's like you don't want to just recreate that within your own conference. And so to me, that's a big factor. It's, you know, who's spending what on football and, you know, what's what's the investment there and what's the commitment there? Like, you know, are you committed to being in this conference and to competing uh, at a high level? Because, you know, I, I mean, with USC and UCLA, it's a it's a it's easy because of the market and because of recruiting. USC and UCLA could both just decide, you know what, we're not going to do NIL and we're just not going to be competitive. And the Big Ten would probably still be like, hey, we don't care. <laughs> we'll come out here and whoop your ass every year and, and we'll get all your good players and we'll be out there in L.A. And that's the win-win for us, even still. But you can't really say that with UTUB and Oregon, especially not Oregon. Nobody's going to Eugene to recruit. And uh, Portland doesn't recruit that many or doesn't produce that many great players. Um, the Bay Area, eh, kind of, sort of. You know, there's there may be enough good players out there where it's like, okay, Stanford, maybe you're not putting as much money as, as you need to, you know, for new facilities and, and what have you to be competitive. But, you know, we'll still go out there and, and, and whoop you uh, in front of all your recruits. So I can interject before it goes off the rails. Am I allowed to consider Notre Dame or are they out yes, the limit? Yes, yes, Okay, no. well then I, I think – TCU, Baylor? I mean, you know, what does it look like? I think it's Notre Dame, Clemson – Florida State because I want to I want a little bit of the Florida pie. I want a little over bit Miami? of over Miami or with Miami. Uh, it all depends. Uh, I guess if I, I would take Miami over Florida State all day long. I think Miami brings better academics and I think they bring a a better a, a better recruiting base. Yeah, like, I mean, in a better they're, market, they're like fifty five and forty nine in terms of academic negligible. In oh, terms really? of the ranking, Florida State and Miami. Yeah, I really. Oh wow! I mean, I thought Miami was uh, there was a big gap between Miami. And Florida. I, 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 Florida's I, not bad. Florida's got a great. No, Florida there. is. I was uh, surprised that Florida was so uh, high. I, I was not aware that they were so high. Yeah, they got one of the best uh, journalism schools in the nation. Missouri, Florida. Yeah, uh, I think Maryland's in that top twenty, but that's neither here. Or there, or what? Maybe they're not that high. I th- thought they were like one of the highest of the SEC. It doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> Washington is like number seventeen in the nation, so I kind of like that. But I think Notre Dame, Washington, Clemson, and Florida State would be my four that I would take to get me to twenty. Interesting. Interesting. All right. Yeah, I think Notre Dame's a kind of obvious one, another kind of no-brainer like UCLA and, and USC. Not because of the recruited grounds or what have you. I think it's really just tradition and, and the brand. Yeah, it it, and it fits. It, it, it fits well, and so it would just make things easier. Um, yeah, no Clemson, Florida State for me. Yeah, it, it would definitely be Miami, and I think I'd try to reach down into Texas and pluck a, maybe pluck a school like TCU. I I know there's some weird stuff with the Pac-12. Again, you know, we're going back to the Pac-12 and what they wanted to do, and you're trying to get away from that mentality. But the the talk when Larry Scott was trying to make that move with merging some of the Big 12 with the Pac-10 and making like the Pac-16, and Baylor was evidently out in the cold, 
And, uh, you know, Baylor was was threatening to sue, yada, 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 if they were left behind. But, you know, one of the things was the Pac-12 didn't want anything to do with any parochial type schools. They didn't want to yeah. deal with any religious type schools or whatever. And it's like, man, come on, man. We're talking about football here. Um, I don't think that's that should be a narrative that should override you know, the amount of investment that these schools are putting in into football and sports in general. And so uh, the commitment, you know, from some of those schools, you know, TCU becomes a little more of a trendy pick um, as a program because obviously they were in the national title uh, last year um, and they had a great year. Um, I, I mean, I, I am a little on the fence about that, though. I mean, I'd much rather tap Texas like UT would be far and beyond like the school can't have them i know can't have them can't but have that, would, them. that that would be the school I'd, I'd say no thank you oklahoma uh no thank you texas a&m and i would take texas maybe that's how it ends up at the end of the day like down the line you know maybe 10 years from now um but tcu is still interesting just because you're in dallas fort worth and that's that's a big market and again for tv i think that's um that's something you got to keep in mind i mean especially if we're talking about college football becoming pro-am and becoming more professional, then you want to mirror uh, the footprint of the professional programs. And you don't have a lot of Green Bay's out there in the NFL. You've got more big city teams, and there's a reason for that. So I think with the Big Ten, that's what you sort of want to mirror. And so that's why I go into Miami or I think about going to TCU before I go after the little college towns and and uh, you know places that are that are maybe good football factories, but a little bit off the map and 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 have. Um, at placing college football because of what college football was, but maybe not necessarily what college football is going to be. I mean, that's fair. I, I was kind of just going more with the balance of football to academic, not necessarily TV markets, which you have kind of leaned into a little bit more, but that's fair. Yeah, TV uh, markets and and commitment to football are kind of at the top of the list. Recruiting territory would be in that three. And then I start looking at, you know, I think I'm high in those. I think I'm high in those, those, uh, those qualifications with my four with it comes to Notre Dame, Clemson and Florida state, at least Washington, maybe not, but they're, they're the highest academic of that, of those four that I picked. No, I think, I think Washington's okay. I would question more Clemson. I mean, it's South Carolina. It's, kind of i mean it's it's good uh from it's like mississippi it's it's good from a a ratio standpoint you know like the amount of recruits that they put out and, and from that you know smaller number you know the guys that go to the nfl what have you because it's not a very it's not a big state obviously like florida or, or georgia or what have you um but uh yeah the, when the academics things would probably you know if you start bringing that into the factor now yeah, it becomes a little more difficult. But I feel like you get more out of Miami than Florida State from that standpoint. And you probably get more out of TCU than Clemson at that standpoint. And then when you're comparing that with the TCU, <coughs> bless, bless you. There's a bless you. I say bless you to myself. Bless me. Excuse yeah, me. Excuse me is what I meant. Not bless you. <laughs> then you can say thank you for me saying bless yeah. you. Uh, but we just uh, both blessed you. Um, so you're double blessed and um, you. Uh, you're going to have Clemson and Florida state in your, uh, in your, in your big 10. Sure. Let's rock it. Let's rock it. And I'm not, I'm going for Stanford, UW, Notre Dame, Miami, maybe TCU. I thought about Stanford. 
I thought about Stanford, but I just don't see the football in it all. So, but, but you know, I feel like Stanford would rather just be an Ivy. You know, just go, just go the Ivy route. <laughs> the Ivy, they'll be the one. They'll be the 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 lone school in the Western Ivy pod. <laughs> It'll be them, and maybe they can get Gonzaga in there or something. I think Gonzaga. Yeah. Pretty high academic. Just be a little Ivy pod. So I try to exit out of this earlier, but I'm going to do it now. Let's do it but now. Let's jump to our listener question base. And just a reminder, if you want to send us a question, just email us at podcast.uspeople.com. Just make sure you put the composite in the subhead or 10K and Gerard, Hurricane, Recruiting Pod, whatever, and it'll come to my inbox. Well, they have three questions. Again, Gerard, I would really love to get out of here before midnight. So let's keep it brief. And I know a lot of you are screaming in your car or while you're walking your dogs. On your way to uh, Eastern New York. On your way to Eastern New York. But I've been up since 4 a.m. So, and it's it's our podcast, so I can kind of call my shot here. So first question comes from Coach B. What up, my dudes? Back to my lineman questions. O-line coach here. Can't help it. Hoping Garage can give some clarity here. That's Garage Martinez. With the flip of Manasseh Tite, can we be optimistic about the modern-day lineman again? I will be honest, there's a bit of feeling of entitlement there for me. Any chance we can get the MD pipeline boost, or are those guys a bit out of reach? Thanks, my dudes. Coach B, we kind of talked about this a little bit in our cold open. You but, want to tell him, Chris, or should I tell him? Uh, I mean, they, they they listen to you more. The question was for Garage, so not likely right now. Not likely. Something's got to change and it's got to be kind of drastic. And like I always say, never say never in recruiting. But right now it is not looking good for USC getting either DeAndre Carter or Brandon Baker. Better chance with uh, Carter than Baker, if you want me to give you a little bit of optimism with that. Uh, next question comes from David Law. Cilantro boys, I realize it's not your beat. Also, before I finish this question, I realize a lot of you probably might turn off the podcast at this point, but just, just stick with us. I realize it's not your beat, but can you try to explain what the heck Chip Kelly is doing with recruiting at UCLA? I get that he likes his own kind of players, whatever that means. They currently have one four-star recruit and only two players in the top 500 in the country. They don't seem to have any interest in recruiting top players with the exception of Dante Moore last year. How can they hope to compete in the Big Ten? Thanks, David Law. I believe, Gerard, before the show we looked up, they have 10 commitments in total of their high school class. Yeah, right now they've got 10 commits. And uh, Christian Dunbar Hawkins, the brother oh. of uh, of uh, Chris Hawkins, um, is uh, the highest rated the highest rated guy they've got in their class. So interestingly enough, um, there's uh, some family ties there. But yeah, you're right. I, I mean, that has been Chip Kelly's mo even going back to Oregon. The big difference you see here is Nike. Uh, the big difference you see here is the the supplemental support that Nike gives the recruiting department at Oregon versus UCLA. UCLA, this is Chip Kelly recruiting, and this is how he wants to recruit. He is a system guy. He puts his faith in the system. He recruits guys that he feels will fit in his system, and he's fine uh, going to the transfer portal for additional players and 
um, not getting caught up in a bunch of these uh, four-star, five-star recruitments. He's looking for TKGs, as they call them. They're kind of guys. And they're kind of guys are guys that fit the system, that fit their play design. And he doesn't care if it's a four-star guy or five-star guy. It just does not care. And I don't know the whole backstory to Dante Moore ending up at UCLA. Um, you know, clearly that was one where Chip's like, hey, we got to go get a game changer. That's a franchise position for us. But there's, you know, several franchise positions, left tackle, what have you. I do like their offensive line recruiting. I mean, it is a very Tim Dreveno type uh, of offensive line. And and they've got some guys. Uh, they've got one guy here that did have a scholarship offer from USC. In fact, there was talk he was going to officially visit USC. That's Marquise Thorpe Taylor. 6'5", 315-pound uh, offensive tackle from Washington. Uh, might be more of an interior guy, not 100% sure, but he took uh, an official visit to UCLA and committed, I think, uh, right after that and visit to UCLA. USC also had some interest in Jensen Somerville, who I believe took an, a, a visit, not official visit. Uh, he, he visited last season during a game, and then Mark Schroeder as well. USC got him on campus a couple times. Yeah, not guys that had scholarship offers, though, I don't yeah. think. I don't think no, no scholarship offers. had a scholarship offer. But Schroeder's a guy that might, you know, come into the conversation if USC decides to go uh, and pivot and bring in another guy at the high school ranks. I mean, we saw that with the linebacker position. I could see him being potentially a guy they offer a scholarship to if uh, they go that route at offensive line. So uh, we'll see, you know, how it all shakes out. Um, but this is definitely a Chip Kelly kind of class. Uh, it, it's very similar to the Oregon classes he had, minus like the four or five guys that you get, like DeAnthony Thomas or Michael James or Lake C. Strunk. And those were guys that obviously were, you know, going to Oregon. And, you know, uh, it was, uh, <laughs> I think they got in trouble for recruiting some of those guys, is what I'm trying to tell you. But, um, uh, you know, that's just not really happening at UCLA. UCLA is just, um, there's not that sort of, uh, you know, people from Nike in the athletic department, like helping in the recruit. It's, uh, it's all UCLA and, you know, Chip is, is very happy just to recruit the guys that, um, he likes on film. You know, I'm probably doesn't even have a subscription to 24 seven sports. And the final question, which I'm actually excited for, I think it was a really good, a fun question for Gerard. This comes from David Cilantro boys. I have two queries for Gerard. For Gerald, excuse me. For background, what do Nate Frazier, Christian Pierce, and Drake London have in common? Answer, they are all players you liked more than their rankings would suggest. So my question, what are the guys you would add to that list historically? I'm curious how many of those guys have lived up to their expect to your expectations. My second question is about one of the biggest USC flops ever, Dylan Baxter. Was he just massively overhyped, or does off-field issues keep him from achieving his potential? Uh, Gerard, for the first part, I would actually add uh, Braylon Shelby to that list as well. Say less. Yeah, Bray- Braylon. I didn't want to like interject Braylon because I I was like I wanted. To oh, I was ready. Me. I was ready. <laughs> you I were gonna bring on, him up. I thought our record. I was gonna put that in there for you. I thought I thought I would sound like a broken record if I was like, oh, I got to talk about Brandon Shelby. He's like, I'm just not going to say anything and just see if Chris has anything to say about him, like how he looks. Tell you what, from your breakdown, just of seeing him physically in person, like I would have probably pounded the table five star. The, the reason why I didn't go completely Drake London is because we never got to see him in person. And so you were just watching film. And you're like, he looks like he's got great wingspan and 
all these different things. Again, I don't want to be a broken record, but yeah, he 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 was up there. I mean, when they started recruiting him, and it, and, and I think just when he you know put it out that he was going to officially visit, it's like okay, it's a guy that you know is a serious target for USC, and it's like you start really watching the film, and you're like, holy crap. Um, it looks like a, looks like a dude, dude. Um, so yeah, he would have been up there. That's a, that, there's a list of, of guys. We, we are trying to get Chris out of here before uh, midnight Eastern time. Um, but, uh, give me like two, give me like two. Well, I gave you Braylon Shelley. Uh, well, two off the top of my head. I mean, I, I felt like Drake, Drake Jackson was a five star as well. Um, Fred Warner was another guy that, um, you know, USC recruited, and they liked him, but they got more numbers at linebacker and just did not want to push for him. And, you know, he obviously ended up being very good. I, I hate to go on like every just name because it's cherry picking and sounds like I'm just, you know, an armchair quarterback evaluator. There's definitely guys that I've, that I've missed on and thought more of as well. Um, but, yeah, there have there, been some dudes where you're just like, yeah, I mean, I mean he, he definitely looks like a better player than, you know, what he's what he's ranked for whatever reason, usually it's just, you know, physicality, the decisiveness of movement. It's just certain things you see in players. You've seen it before, right? You see what it looks like when a guy is a guy and he sort of stands out. And, um, but you know, the, there's been guys that, that have everything. Um, and we've talked about this in the past, the Ellis McCarthy's of the world. Um, speaking of UCLA recruiting um, that you just, you don't even take it back. You're like, yeah, he was a dude. Whitney Lewis, everybody's like, oh no, that's a mistake. It's like you <laughs> no, you can't. He like in high school, 6'1, 215, had a thousand yards receiving, a thousand yards rushing, and he was a freaking dude. He ran like a 439 at the Nike camp. I mean, he was like, I mean, really athletic. And we even saw it at USC for a short period of time during that spring ball. And so, yeah, there's those guys, which it's usually something mental, emotional you know, that goes on that just completely derails them from football, which requires a lot of sacrifice, a lot of focus, man. Like, you know, football is sort of like the military in that, you know, you do get sort of on a track and people just tell you where to go in and you get used to that. And it's like, okay, just keep your head down. Just do what people tell you, man. Just stay in there. But some guys at some point where it becomes like, you got to really push yourself now. It's not high school. They, they just can't, they can't do it, you know, for whatever reason, yeah. there's a myriad of reasons. So, um, yeah, there's a, there's a few guys. Now, the last question about Dylan Baxter, another guy that, you know, on film, you can't not recruit that guy. You know, he was just so phenomenal down there at Mission Bay, had like seven touchdowns a game. He was playing, uh, you know, a running back and, and was a Wildcat quarterback. You know, he got some some run at UCLA. It was one of those interesting things. Excuse me, UCLA, USC. Um, it was the Lane Kiffin, you know, era. And originally there was some talk like they were going to put him at wide receiver. His issue was speed. He he was sort of Emmanuel Moody, uh, similar in that he can make seven moves, make 12 guys miss. <laughs> guys were running off the sideline trying to tackle him, and he was juking them, but only get like three yards out of that whole play. You know, the difference between like Dylan Baxter and Reggie Bush is Reggie Bush would make those guys miss, and then he would take it 80 yards for a touchdown. It was the acceleration from a point of stopping. You know, it was the zero to 60 in the blink of an eye and not having to have even additional space to get going to accelerate to make guys miss. And, and also with Reggie, he could run almost top speed and make a cut 
and continue that high rate of speed, whereas a guy like Dylan Baxter or Manuel Moody would have to shuffle their feet and kind of come to a stop, make a move, and then try to get going again. But at that point, they would get swarmed. And so the real elite guys, the C.J. Spillers, the Reggie Bushes of the of the world, those guys are elite because they are able to accelerate from contact extremely fast, faster than the swarm can basically come in and gang tackle them. So, you know, they're able to make those two cuts and make some guy move and then get started and they're out of there before you get that linebacker or you get that safety coming down from the backside to try to clean up on the play. So the big issue with him, it wasn't hands. It was really the acceleration from contact, top end speed. And then I think he had some off-field issues as well. He had some issues where, you know, he was um, he was being reprimanded and, and some things, and he ended up uh, – I don't know if he – I don't think he graduated from USC. I think he dropped out and had to transfer somewhere, um, speaking on Dylan Baxter. Gerard, at the beginning of the show, you said this wasn't going to be, you know, that long of an episode because there wasn't much to talk about. Well, the composite jinx held up because I think we're just shy of three hours, so – Bada bing, bada boom. What are we going to do? Gilligan's Island. Gilligan's Island. I don't understand the reference. (laughs) Three-hour tour. Come on, man. Three-hour tour. Listen, (laughs) you still haven't watched the program. You haven't watched Blue Chips. You have not seen the original Point Break. Come on, man. Yeah, we had a a nice little talk about Keanu and Point Break before we – that was actually kind of the warm-up conversation where I test the audio. Point Break. Did not realize Gerard was a huge uh, Point Break the original, Patrick Swayze, Keanu Reeves. You can't remake that movie like 20 years later. You got to wait like 50 years, 100 years. Those guys are icons. That was a great movie. Great California movie, man. Like great just sort of L.A., California beach vibe. Not the Hollywood beach vibe. It was the more grimy, like <laughs> the real sort of criminal underground surfer beach vibe, which, you know, if you hung around those sort of circles, you'd be like, yeah, it's, it's a little more that way than it is like hang 10 dude, Sean Penn out of uh, Ridgemont High. Before we get out of here, just give me one line from the movie. One line from Point Break. Not the one you said at the during the oh, show. Oh, come during on. The it's, the, no. it's the best line. It's 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 when All right, then Keanu Reeves the comes out of the ocean. He's just learning to surf, and he's at the showers, and he had a little bit of a run-in with the locals. And who comes in but war child and his little group and in that group is none other than anthony kiedis from red hot chili peppers making a cameo and keanu reeves looks around and goes oh this is where you say yuppie scum like me shouldn't be on the beach and i should go back to the valley and i'll skip some of the other stuff that said but basically anthony kiedis comes in and this always comes to mind for me he comes and he says that would be a waste of time and then they get into a fight, and Nick Nolte comes running by, and Patrick Swayze comes to the to the rescue. It's great, man. It's a great movie. It's a great flick. You gotta check it out. All right, on that movie review, we're gonna end this podcast. And to our loyal fans, loyal and dedicated fans, thank you for checking out another episode of Composite Two Star Recruits. For them, this was not a waste of time. Three hours. I appreciate you sticking us. We appreciate you sticking through this for this episode. But I'm Chris. That is Gerard, and we will catch you next time on Composite Two Star Recruits. I got my got my audio back. Yeah, Leopard sucks. 
MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast wherever you get your podcasts.